tell you that I'm whole, but I'm still healing. I tell you that I'm happy, but I'm grieving. But I was a fighter. I'm still in the fire. Cause if I'm Honesty. One of the most difficult things for people to uh, demonstrate and uh, hone into. Unfortunately, even interactions between people um, is always driven by selfish intents. And that's the truth. Uh, So today I've kind of described this as the Elons of Mars and symbiosis. I mean, many, many times (laughs) kind of mentioned upgrade, but then you have to think what upgrade means. You know, you've been educated by the constructs that you've evolved from apes. Uh, Mankind always evolves. Through divine intervention or man-made intervention, they evolve. Now, is that for good or or bad? Well, I guess it's the one that's in charge that decides that, right? And by in charge, meaning who you think is in charge. Symbiosis uh, of technology, uh, ah, technological advancements. Can we have technology Meld with mankind. Well, your your phone is an extension of you. It literally hides and holds all the secrets to you. Your emails, your likes, your clicks, your shares, your 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 history is you. I know you better than you know you through your technology. It's just not connected to you. Connected, 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 connected. I guess connected. I've mentioned this before. How man the way they are now, uh, the reason they function and the reason your body has energy and the reason you're able to metabolize and think and, and walk and talk and sleep and, and eat and interact is because a, a cluster of cells. And I'm really hoping that um, many of you have taken heed over the years that I've mentioned. Please see Dr. Bonnie Bassler's TED Talk on how bacteria talk. It is quite important, but The reason I have been honing this is because that is the simplest way for someone to understand. Your cells, down to the core of them, every muscle cell, skin cell, hair cell, heart cell, every cell is in symbiosis with bacteria. Protozoa, protein, simplest cells ever. Circular DNA, and we think they're stupid, yet they communicate. And now... People are discussing a new evolution of man with technology. So they can eliminate the things that they believe make man stupid, which would also mean that technology would have to integrate with bacteria too, because your mitochondria are indeed prokaryotic organisms. 
Okay. They are simple, simple cells. So again, this evolution of man happens either by divine intervention or man-made intervention, and that is a, a choice that people make. But that won't be the discussion of today's show. It is important I put it there because if people think that this evolution of man is coming and isn't here yet, you haven't been listening carefully to what I've been saying. Just like a lot of people have been noticing a few things, it's important that we (laughs) point a few things out. You know how everyone keeps talking about skull and bones, right? It's always look here and not there. Look into, you know, uh, Elon Musk's, you know, plugging of brains into Starlink. Oh, let's all lose our shit. But when Obama created the brain initiative, which then obviously was a successor to things that they have done earlier and, and they thought he had failed. But okay. Okay. Maybe we shouldn't be looking into skull and bones. Maybe we should be looking into the Delphic Mansion at Harvard. You know, the one that J.P. Morgan set up. But that's just another, you know, it's not. Or maybe we should look at how the 33 Club at Disney suddenly evolved to be something mainstream when it really wasn't now that they got busted down. But I digress again. Yeah. 33 Club. You know, down in Anaheim, California, when you used to go there, ring the doorbell, you you have to slot in your membership card to a closed-off box slot. They check that you're a member, and then you enter into something that looks like a gift shop, and then you go up the stairs to the terrace where there's a secret elevator to take you underground to where you're going to be part of this club. They make it sound like it's so benign. It's to- totally not. It's totally not. I else do you need tunnels, but whatever. I digress again. Digress, digress, digress. You know, they also have them in Tokyo and Shanghai, but whatever. They have a front-facing club <laughs> since they were outed and a back-facing club, but we're not going to talk about that today. Today we're going to talk about uh, things that are happening, and it's important that we talk about it, you know, in more detail so we understand it. Uh, but having said that, David Perdue's case was thrown out in Georgia uh, after filing against Fulton County. I mean, it seems like all these judges find something, even in mine. Now I have to, now I'm filing three separate lawsuits. Go figure. And then I'm transferring Ollie's case to Texas. He's going to bleed me dry because the judge didn't want me to do it in his venue. I don't have jurisdiction. Fine. And we're moving it along. Now I have to go to all these other states to get this shit done. It's driving me insane. Everything was done by the book, but they always find something because they don't want it in there. They don't want to be the judge that has to drag it all out. It's just, it's terrible. It's, it's really terrible. You know, it's terrible. But it is what it is. Because this just demonstrates that, you know, <laughs> we just have to keep pushing. Just because we failed doesn't mean we stop. Right. Just because we failed doesn't mean we stop. We keep on going. So now, you know, hope the merits were fine on the case. It was just the jurisdiction. So let's move it along to the jurisdiction. So I've got to hit tons of states now, but we're going to do that. 
I will do that. I will push forward because it isn't fair that, you know, people get to say whatever they want about me and people are using things against my own nation and myself and my children's future. It isn't right. And that needs to be dealt with. Ali Akbar will help me expose something that a lot of people want to pretend doesn't exist, but it will, it will have to come out through the defamation suit. Because if you hit it head on, you fail. You know what's funny? All these people that have committed crimes against me, we're talking criminal harassment. We're talking cyber harassment. We're talking stalking, threats, lying, defamation, libel. They should fucking run. A lot of them are scrubbing their little fucking Twitters and shutting their mouths. <laughs> better be careful. That's right. Because now it's where you realize that you got to be, st- you have to start putting your foot down. There's a point. There's a portion of trolling. There's a portion that's not trolling. I guess I might be enjoying a few people with the Ali case down in Texas. That shit will be fun. And <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Never mind. I'll leave it at that. And you know what's funny? In Georgia, where the case was thrown out, now everyone's like, oh, Pence is forging his own path outside of Trump. And what pops up? Oh, listen to this. Pence's rally with Kemp on May 23rd may be his sharpest rebuke yet of Trump. The former vice president has decided to throw his weight behind a bid to win a second term for one of the Republicans whom Trump has blamed in his attempts to overthrow the 2020 elections. In addition, Pence's longtime concierge, Mark Short, has signed on as an advisor to Kemp. Get the fuck out of here. I already talked about this. See, I don't even want to hear this. I don't, I don't even want to hear people saying it's news. I don't even want to look at people saying it's news because it's not. It was always there. You just didn't talk about it. And it's your fault that nobody talked about it because you didn't. Um, but, the, but it's a mainstream media. Like, nobody watches them anymore. Like nobody cares. The influencers are on life support. They have nothing. They're all creating movies to tell you stories because they're on life support. They have nothing, right? You're either going to find on the right side, you're going to find the people that you can definitely tell paid assets to just put out information. Then you've got the people that are demi trashing other people, but kind of putting some news out, but it's not really news. It's old news. They're just revamping it as news. Then you've got the people that are just trying to make a buck by shitting all over other people, but they're absolutely, they're doing absolutely nothing but complaining. Right. And then you've got this little, little pocket of people that are actually doing something. And those people are being suffocated. And not really though. The people are waking up. Right. The world is seeing your hands up, your arms in your hands, your pens, your stickers. They're seeing, they're seeing you. Yeah. And that's what they can't stand. See, some guy had put out a tweet of Obama saying, I weaponize the IRS, I weaponize, I weaponize. And then it has President Trump next to him saying, I weaponize the people. That's exactly what he did. He weaponized the people. He showed the world exactly 
what is the strongest arsenal any leader and any nation can have. And that is the people, not the influencers, not the losers on TV, not the people that say who's important, but the actual people that get to work and do things. Now, you know, my last show was with, um, Patrick Byrne, who you guys know, we're friends. And, you know, he says that we don't argue a lot, I guess, because he doesn't see argument when I tell him fuck no, or I don't agree with him. Right. (laughs) But, you know, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But one thing we do see eye to eye on is the fact that the people need to take back the nation. People really need to take back the nation. And the fact that, you know, this whole shtick of, you know, oh, we got to reform the GOP. Oh, we got to reform the DNC. It's like, that's dead. It's like trying to say, well, I'm going to decorate my prison better and I'm going to put nicer prison guards and maybe some frills on the bars. It's still a prison. These people, think about it. From your city, state, region to federal, these people are milking money from the people and there's a lot of people that are losing out on money. Right now, all they have is corporate donations. None of the people are donating to them and that's what's important. You know, you can't sit there and say, well, ah, I'm going to run this guy under this and that and this. No, 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 no. Because the corporations will not have it. That's the way it is. We just have to destroy the structures that they created in order to control us. It's pretty simple. It's not rocket science. It's definitely not rocket science. And those people that are screaming, well, the GLP, it's like, damn, you guys crave support. You want prisons. And, you know, I was watching the Matrix something, something. Do you know what time I got home last night? Like 2.30. My flights were late, 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 late. Anyway, and I was watching the latest Matrix part. And it was a part that Neil Patrick Harris said, so what if you free people, right? Sheeple aren't going anywhere. They love structure. They love order for the sense of security. They'll stick to whatever makes them feel more comfortable. They will rather be slaves and comfortable than free and uncomfortable. And that's so true. I see it within people that are conservatives. It's so true. They can't fathom not having a structure. It's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing, watching all these people hoping that, you know, oh, we're going to reform the GOP, (laughs) and we got to stick with that. We got to stick with it, and they're crying. We need the GOP. We don't need it. The GOP needs us, and the GOP isn't serving us, therefore, sayonara. So now before we get into like the really important stuff that we need to know now for in the short term future, but definitely for the fall, you know, what's funny. Do you know that now other countries are sanctioning all the family members of Putin? So let's say someone doesn't like you, your mom, your sister, your girlfriend, possibly your girlfriend and your cousins are now sanctioned by the rest of the world. So weird. So so weird. That's what they're really doing. They're actually sanctioning them. I just can't believe it. So where do we start today? I mean, we got to talk about, we're not going to talk about Turkey. You've learned everything you need to know about Turkey. What we need to learn about is the Arctic Council. That's something we need to learn about. But in order to learn about the Arctic 
Arctic Council. Also kind of have to learn about NATO's cyber defense security, uh, you know, conglomerate. That's what you have to learn about. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Right. Because we have member states of NATO. Right. But people don't understand that there's different types of NATOs. There's like physical NATO with like guns and everything. Right. And then there's, you know, all the other NATOs. And why am I saying this? Because for some reason, Ukraine's like seem to be in the middle of this. And I obviously I watch the news like everyone. So today I was trying to get some work done. Um in between of me running around errands, right? Because I'm supposed to, I am supposed to be going on vacation now. That You know what? I have to say, I have not been on an actual vacation. I want to say like, okay, does two days count? Not really, right? Um, if you don't have work, if you went somewhere for work and you have two days, no, it doesn't count. Hold on. It's 2022, right? Oh, shoot. 2022. Uh, 2012, 2002 would be 20 years. So I would have to say, I guess after giving birth to Phoebe, I went on vacation with a newborn baby. Shit. That's a long time. (laughs) That's a really long time. But I'm also going to be working during my vacation. I am going to go meet with our, Tori says, peeps in Puerto Rico, of course. I'm going to hand them over some stuff to do stuff so I could bring it back with me. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's you know, so out of the seven days, the four days, I'm going to do it. I actually tried to order a mermaid tail, but Hera has banned that. She said, mom, if you bring that, she had me cancel it. She saw it. She's like, I'm not going to be seen in public with you with that. You do not bring that with you. So that's, <laughs> she said, no, <laughs> she, she, she said, no. So, um, that's sad. Uh, tomorrow I'm actually going, um, I'm going to be traveling. It's going to be a four-hour drive to get there, four hours to get back because I've got some really important matters to tend to. (laughs) Just trying to do that housekeeping before we walk into what we're going to be walking into. And I'm thinking, like, how do you start this conversation? I think the first thing to talk about, what do you do? Do you talk about cyber defense? Do you talk about NATO? Do you talk about Turkey? Do you talk about Sweden, Finland? Like, how do you introduce this? Do you talk about Estonia? But what about Bano, you know? I think maybe we should start with the newest news. How's that? Newest news? Newest news. Okay, so the newest news, just so you guys know, and I'm going to look for a video, is that Russia actually created, in the Arctic region, a floating nuclear power plant. Um, and the reason they did this is they have like this floating boat, um, you know, in the Arctic that's a power plant. And Putin did this in December of 2021 because he wants to start, you know, exploiting the riches of the Arctic. I don't know why they keep saying that. Like everybody else does too. But anyway, he created this nuclear power plant, which is the first time that's ever happened in history. Um, and people are like, oh, is to help his Arcticals. Actually, there's a city um, that has a power plant that gives us energy that gives it that gets its energy from a really old power plant. So that's really why that was created. So it could be off the coast of it and create the energy needed. Now um, it's help. The city is called, um, uh, Oh, 
sorry, the plant is also supposed to power things for people in the Pitakai uh, mine and Rosatom, uh, Rosatom plants in store four floating nuclear power, power that can't even, sound, can't even speak today, um, four nuclear power plants across the Chanuskaya Bay um, within the next 10 to 15 years. So the company wants to provide power to the Bimskaya copper mining project. Um, They're actually powered by a really old nuclear power plant. And hence he thought a floating one is better. Now I don't know how much better that would be, but uh, I found a video. Let me add this to it. It's actually news. It's actually news. And I think I'm going to show this one before the news that I actually saw that caught my eye. And I paused it immediately and I was like, I have to show everyone. So since we're going to be on the Russian topic, we can see that. But everything circles around Ukraine, but then this is happening and this is something important. I mean, how do you miss someone creating a floating damn nuclear power plant like that? That's insane. How do you not make that news? It's just so weird, right? Floating nuclear power plant, not news. Here we go. 13 years after construction began in 2007, the academic Lomonosov went into full operation. It is currently the world's only floating nuclear power plant. In this video, we want to understand why Russia is building these new facilities and what strategic advantages they try to gain. Using nuclear power at sea is not entirely new. It is a technology that is of great importance for military usage. Nuclear-propelled ships are able to be self-sufficient over a long period of time, making them less reliable on ports or supply ships. This expensive technology provided enormous strategic advantages during the Cold War and was therefore primarily pushed forward by the United States and the Soviet Union. The entire active U.S. aircraft carrier fleet is nuclear-powered, and France also maintains a nuclear-powered carrier. China, which is currently building its own fleet of aircraft carriers, is also considering using nuclear power for them in the future. In addition, Russia operates a number of nuclear-powered icebreakers, and in military submarines, nuclear propulsion is particularly beneficial as it enables the crew to stay underwater for months at a time if necessary. But the academic Lomonosov is not a warship, and the nuclear energy isn't used to propel the ship itself. Rather, it is a floating power plant that could produce electricity for up to 200,000 people. An idea that also isn't entirely new. The first floating nuclear power plant was the MH-1A, a converted Second World War cargo ship built for the US Army, which used to ship in the Panama Canal zone in the 60s and 70s. However, this ship, which served as a prototype for an eventual fleet of such plants, was retired from service in 1976, and the project never continued. The nuclear plant consists of two KLT-40 naval propulsion reactors that are already being used in Russian icebreakers. It is 144 meters long and 30 meters wide and will be able to provide up to 70 megawatts of electricity. The heat generated during nuclear fission can be used for district heating. Since the vessel has no propulsion of its own, it must be towed to wherever it is heading. And every 12 years, the entire power plant will be towed back to the shipyard where it is overhauled and the nuclear waste is unloaded. 
Completion of the academic Lomonosov took place in St. Petersburg, from which the ship was then towed to Murmansk. Here, it was equipped with the nuclear fuel elements, repainted, and then began its journey to its first location, Piviek, north of the Arctic Circle. The power plant will supply this shrinking port town with energy, and it should replace an existing aging power plant. Russia wants to mass-produce these floating power plants and therefore achieve more efficient construction than is currently possible with nuclear power plants. In addition to cost savings resulting from the assembly line efficiencies of a shipyard, the project planners also hope to reduce local opposition that is common with new nuclear plants. These vessels can be removed from a region with little effort, which could increase acceptance of such projects. Additionally, these plants can be used more flexibly. They could bridge transition times in regions that are undergoing structural change. And these power plants could cover short-term energy requirements, for example in larger construction projects or offshore drilling. Now looking at Russia's coast, it's quite obvious that these plants will be used. The Russian Arctic is experiencing the consequences of global warming, and the Russian government is investing into this region. Since 1978, scientists have been able to continuously monitor the polar region with satellites. And the data shows that the area of sea ice is declining. Proportionally, the amount of old ice, which is thicker and contributes to the binding of new ice, is reduced. This facilitates access to northern oil and gas deposits, and the Russian government wants to promote the usage of the Northern Sea Route, a shorter connection between Europe and Asia. The amount of time each year that this route is clear of ice and can be passed by container ships is increasing. On March 6, 2020, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a strategy paper that outlines Russia's intention in the Arctic for the next 15 years. It includes measurements to improve the socio-economic situation of communities in these regions, as well as further promote the Northern Sea Route, as well as tax reliefs for oil and gas projects in the Arctic. As part of these plans, Russia is also renewing its nuclear icebreaker fleet with two new classes that are planned to be larger and more powerful than the existing icebreakers. The floating power plant could be an important tool in this larger Russian plan to better utilize the strategic potential of the country's Arctic region. For example, five of these floating power plants will be used by the Russian energy company Gazprom for offshore drilling platforms on the Kola and Jamal peninsulas. Public opinion on nuclear energy varies widely in different countries. Major catastrophes such as the Chernobyl disaster in 1986 or Fukushima Daiichi in 2011 have also led to many nations deciding against nuclear energy and some countries phasing out the technology. In many places, it is a controversial political subject where the risks of a catastrophe and negative long-term consequences are weighed against economic aspects, energy security, and a reduction of carbon emissions. The Russian floating nuclear power project is also criticized by a number of organizations. Despite marine nuclear power being used in a wide variety of military technologies, there is a fear that a floating power plant is more susceptible to natural disasters. 
Particularly, there is a concern that in the event of a tsunami, an accident could be caused. In previous incidents, such as a radioactive leak on a nuclear-powered Russian icebreaker in 2011, have contributed to safety concerns. However, the operator claims it has considered all risks involved and was able to rule out any danger with the facility. Due to the country's potential, Russia has opted for an expensive investment in an area that is not pursued by many other nations, but it is probable that Russia will not remain alone. China is also aiming to build floating nuclear power plants, so this might be a technology that we will see more of in the coming decades, as it can be a strategic advantage for either bridging transition periods or for remote regions that want to increase their energy security. Energy security. And the only time that you would actually use nuclear energy and rely on it is when there's no sun, so your solar doesn't work. When there's no wind, wind needs gas. When you're out of fossil fuel or, I don't know, you're floating somewhere out in space or maybe you're going through some really, um, you know, a strait down, you know, by the southern sea and there's no recollection of what may be going there but we're not going to be talking about the southern sea we're going to be talking about the arctic today because you know it seems like oh look at the south don't look at the north look at the south don't look at the north we should talk about the north we've talked about this before right we've talked about this before on the arctic council had i think maybe one or two shows on it especially when pompeo was putting his foot down and while everyone thinks that this whole, oh, Finland, Norway, they can't be in NATO because they're going to be flanking Russia, shut up. It has nothing to do with that. It has something else to do. So <laughs> the Arctic Council, just so you know, has only eight nations that are part of it. That's Canada, the Kingdom of Denmark, the United States, Iceland, that's four that are within NATO. And then there's Sweden and, and, and Norway, five. Then there's Sweden, the Russian Federation, and um, Finland. So those are the other Arctic Councils. And how are, they, how are they part of the Arctic Council? Because they have Arctic nations. Now you're going to be like, what? Wait, yeah, that's right. We've got Alaska. And see, a lot of people don't know that Alaska was actually sold to the United States by Russia to the United States for a whopping $7.2 million. <laughs> and here's, here's, the, here's the cool thing. The reason Russia sold it to the U.S. is because they didn't trust the crown. And at that time, Lincoln was president and Lincoln was like, yo, you know, we're, we're going through a civil war. This is a little bit crazy. And so, you know what? Let me find a video. There's got to be a video out there. Mm. Okay, here we go. Found one. Let's see. See? That's super quick. Thanks, Google. <sighs> I'll tell you the facts. If anything is wrong, I will um, jump in. But usually history is not that skewed in things like this. It's a valuable source of natural resources for its Russian settlers. And the territory was a major center of world trade. 
And yet, at the height of the settlement's prosperity, the Russians would shock the world when they sold these lucrative lands to the young and territory-hungry U.S. in 1867, relatively for a paltry sum. In the decades since, Alaska has earned the U.S. back its purchase price hundreds of times over, with the hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue generated from the territory's natural resources, including fish, furs, timber, gold, and other precious metals. Oh, and of course, petroleum. It just might have turned out to be one of the worst real estate deals in history for the Russians. And it's enough to make anyone wonder why Russia had to sell Alaska to the U.S. in the first place. Russia's journey to Alaska started back in the 16th century. In 1581, eager to spread their Orthodox Christian faith and to get their hands on lucrative fur trading lands, Russian forces pushed their way into Siberian territory known as the Khanate of Sibir, then controlled by a grandson of the legendary warrior Genghis Khan. Russia now controlled the area's vast natural resources and gained control of a large new group of taxpayers. And within 60 years of their first journey into Siberia, they had conquered the whole of Siberia and reached the Pacific Ocean in the east. It would take more than 100 years for them to start to look beyond their continent, though. In the early 18th century, Russia's Peter the Great formed the country's first navy in order to explore the coast and determine just how far east the landmass of Asia extended. It wouldn't be long before Russia looked to expand beyond Asia and across the ocean. In 1741, a Danish cartographer and explorer named Vitis Bering was serving as an officer in the Russian Navy when he was tasked with leading the first Russian trans-Pacific exploration. Bering and his crew set out from their staging point in the Siberian city of Okhotsk and crossed the ocean via the straits that would eventually come to bear his name. At their narrowest points, the distance between Siberia and Alaska is just 51 miles. So it didn't take long for Bering to catch his first sight of Mount St. Elias near present-day Yakutat, Alaska. While his first journey had been a success and led to the discovery of fertile new lands, Bering wasn't so lucky on his second journey. He and his crew were caught in a fierce storm and shipwrecked on the Aleutian Islands, a string of volcanic islands off the coast of Alaska that separates the Bering Sea to the north from the Pacific Ocean to the south. While his crew worked to fix the ship, Bering succumbed to scurvy and died in December of 1741. Nevertheless, his crew filled their newly repaired ships with the furs of otters, foxes, and seals they had captured and returned home to share the news of the newly discovered land of riches. While they returned to Russia with their precious cargo, they so impressed the seasoned Russian fur hunters with their haul that they prompted something akin to the Klondike gold rush that would follow a few decades later. Russian settlers flocked to Alaska en masse in search of furs and fortune. At its peak, Russia's Alaskan colony was home to 800 intrepid settlers. The land may have been rich in resources, but it wasn't an easy place to live. Communication was a major problem, considering that they were half a world away from St. Petersburg and supplies were not quick to arrive from the motherland. They were also too far north for agriculture to successfully support a large number of settlers, so the Russians began exploring further south, looking for other settlements with which to trade for food. Eventually, the Russians sent ships as far south as California, where they traded with the Spanish and even established their own settlement at Fort Ross in 1812 in present-day Sonoma County. By the mid-19th century, Russian Alaska, with its copious resources, was a center of world trade. And yet, Russian Tsar Alexander II would shock the world when he made the largest and perhaps the most foolish real estate deal in history. On March 30, 1867, Russian envoy Baron Eduard de Stokel met with U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward to broker a deal to sell 370 million acres of pristine Alaskan wilderness to the U.S. for the paltry sum of $7.2 million. The Alaskan territory was one-third the size of all Europe, 
and the price tag in today's dollars would have been just $113 million. In the years since this historic deal went down, the U.S. has earned back their purchase price hundreds of times over, thanks to Alaska's hundreds of billions of dollars worth of natural resources, including the furs, fish, walrus ivory, and timber that initially attracted the Russians, but also the copper, gold, platinum, zinc, lead, and, of course, petroleum that would be discovered years later. This has led to countless rumors about the deal, with some speculating that Russia only agreed to lease Alaska to the U.S. and that the U.S. refuses to give it back. Others actually believe that the U.S. outright stole Alaska from Russia. Despite these tales, historians from both countries agree that the sale was valid. But why would Russia want to sell such valuable land to the U.S. for such a small sum? Just 30 years after the first Russian settlers landed in Alaska, the sea otter population, which was the Russians' primary export, had been nearly decimated by overhunting, and the colony was no longer profitable. On top of that, Alaska was also incredibly difficult to support and to defend. All of these issues may have been surmountable, but for one major problem. In the 1850s, Russia was in the midst of the Crimean War a brutal, bloody conflict with British and French forces over Russia's threats to European interests in the Middle East. Fighting a war required huge amounts of cash, so Russia was eager to unload the struggling Alaskan territory in exchange for more money to help their war efforts. Unfortunately, the proceeds of the sale did little to help the Russian war effort. By the war's end, Russia had lost the war along with more than half a million troops, mostly to disease, malnutrition, and exposure, and the peace treaty crippled the Russian economy for decades to come solidifying their fall from the ranks of world leaders in trade and exploration. The relatively young country of the United States, meanwhile, was undergoing a period of rapid and controversial expansion. The U.S. acquired Louisiana from France in the 1803 Louisiana Purchase, and in 1819 they settled a long-standing land dispute with Spain when the U.S. took control of modern-day Florida and the Gulf Coast lands in exchange for leaving Texas alone. Of course, this wouldn't last. After many failed attempts to purchase Texas from the newly independent Mexican Republic throughout the 1820s and 1830s, the U.S. annexed Texas in 1836 following years of bloody conflicts. With new lands to the south secured, the U.S. turned its attention to the west, starting with the Oregon Territory. By the early 1800s, Oregon was home to settlers from Spain, Britain, the U.S., and even Russia. But by 1845, the territory was firmly under U.S. control. Finally, they looked to the fertile lands of the southwest coast, and following a brutal two-year war, Mexico ceded nearly one million square miles of land to the U.S., and the state of California was born. U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward would sum up the United States' prevailing expansionist mindset in 1848, when he wrote that our population is destined to roll resistless waves to the ice barriers of the north and to encounter oriental civilization on the shores of the Pacific. Given this sentiment, it's hardly surprising that the U.S. turned its attention to Alaska next. Americans saw the potential in Alaska's resources, namely gold, fur, fish at the time, as well as the strategic position of the territory to facilitate trade with China and Japan. The U.S. was also concerned that Britain, their mortal enemy at the time, would try to establish a presence in the territory, and they felt that acquiring Alaska would help the U.S. become a major power in the Pacific. Not everyone agreed with Seward's position on Alaska. The deal was sometimes referred to as Seward's Folly, and Alaska earned the nickname of Seward's Icebox. But history would side with Seward, and Alaska would go on to become one of the richest states in the U.S. today. Alaska's abundance of natural resources had allowed the U.S. to earn back the cost of the purchase hundreds of times over, and the hundreds of billions of dollars earned on the state's resources allows Alaska to be one of the few states with no state level or sales taxes. In fact, every inhabitant of the state actually receives an annual stipend from the state's massive resource income. 
Alaska is also the U.S.'s gateway to the Arctic and a key part of its defense system, with military bases located in Anchorage and Fairbanks. When the U.S. purchased Alaska from Russia, relations between the two nations were cordial and the U.S.'s biggest enemy was Britain. But today, the situation is quite different, and Alaska functions as the U.S.'s window on Russia and allows them to keep tabs on their adversary across the Pacific. Additionally, with melting glaciers opening more of the Arctic to resource exploration, Alaska gives the U.S. access to these potentially valuable lands and a seat at the table for these important ecological discussions. No conversation about Alaska would be complete without taking a look at the impact on the indigenous peoples who inhabited these lands long before the Russians or U.S. settlers arrived. When Bering first crossed the strait and arrived in Alaska, there were already more than 100,000 people living there, including Inuit, Athabaskan, Yupik, Yunangan, and Tlingit peoples. There were 17,000 people living on the Aleutian Islands alone when Bering was shipwrecked there. The presence of these people did little to dissuade the Russians and later the Americans. Early Russian settlers ruled over the native peoples with an iron fist, taking the children of the leaders as hostages to ensure cooperation destroying the homes and hunting equipment of tribes to make them dependent on settlers, and selecting Christianized leaders to control the native populations. The Russians also brought new weapons like guns and cannons, which were foreign to the indigenous populations, making it easier to subdue any possible uprising. By the time Russia ceded Alaska to the U.S., there were only 50,000 indigenous people remaining in the territory, less than half of the original population. When the U.S. took control of Alaska, they were in the midst of the Indian Wars in the continental states, and they took a similar position on the native peoples of Alaska, treating them as potential adversaries. In the 1860s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs undertook a campaign to eradicate indigenous Alaskan culture, outlawing their languages, religion, art, music, and ceremonies. Native Alaskans were denied U.S. citizenship until 1924, and they could not vote, own property, or file mining claims. Even once citizenship was granted, it wasn't until 1945 that outright discrimination was banned. It was still common at the time to see Alaskan businesses with signs prominently stating, no dogs or natives allowed. In later decades, some attempts at reparations were made. In 1971, President Nixon ceded 44 million acres of land and $1 billion to Alaska's native populations. Many indigenous people don't believe this is nearly enough, though and they argued that the U.S. never had the right to buy Alaska from Russia in the first place, and that the 1867 treaty was merely the transfer of the right to negotiate with the native peoples from Russia to the U.S. Today, more than 740,000 people live in Alaska, 120,000 of whom are native peoples. Russia's decision to sell its Alaskan territory to the U.S. in 1867 may have made good financial sense at the time for a nation deep in the midst of an expensive war, but it would go down in history as one of the worst real estate deals of all time. If you thought this video was interesting, be sure and check out our other videos. I don't think like it was a video. bad real estate deal. See, they tell you a story and they tell you why it happened. Thank you for the rants, um, everyone. Thank you. Um, they tell you why they supposedly did it, but you all know that it's another reason. It was a strategic reason. See, we always complain about Russia and Russia's always complaining about pe people that are close to our border are part of NATO and we're like deadly enemies with Russia, yet we can walk over to Russia from Alaska, but okay. Um, and they sold us Alaska, okay. And actually the deal was going, uh, was offered in 1865. It wasn't, it was because we were going through the Civil War that it wasn't finalized until 1867. Let's put that straight. And so it is, uh, you know, pretty weird, all these people having conversations and, you know, talking about all these things. I just wanted to bring in Alaska because we're going to talk about that, too. But 
we talk about the nuclear energy uh, floating, and it's not for the Arctic. It's for the Antarctic. Crossing the Straits, we're ready to go. But, um, the, you know, everyone talking about how nuclear energy is bad, nuclear energy is this. I, I thought, you know, it would be interesting to look at Greenland. Greenland, as you know, I've been to Thule. Thule was actually the name of what... Um, ancient Greeks called the, um, the North Pole, <laughs> but it's not. Um, actually, uh, it wasn't until 2021, I think in the late fall, where um, they found a new mass of land that's the most northern mass of land called Kekertak Avonralik, um, which is an island um, on the northern part of Greenland, uh, which outdid Kafenkublin Island. Um, and, you know, it's just like a bunch of dirt lumped around and they call it like a piece of land because you could stand on it in the water. It's an island, very small. Uh, but they say that's the closest one to the North Pole, but then no one ever really tells you where the North Pole is or what the northern most piece of land is, but the most northern town in America is Barrow, Alaska, and I've been there, paid the $8 peanut butter, and um, it has one of the biggest research centers ever there and then you have to ask like you know why is it so isolated and why have they pumped in trillions even quad billions of dollars in research there and and you know what are they really researching take a look at a life in the day of barrow alaska it's a vast an and enormous landmass, inside of which you could fit all of Texas, California, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and New Jersey. Those states have a combined population of 142 million people. Alaska has a population of just 738,000, or just 0.005% of the same population. And located here at the northern edge of the state is an interesting town called Barrow. This isn't going to be a normal video from me, because unlike all of my previous videos, I actually went here in person to film this. Barrow is located well into the Arctic Circle, and is just a mere 2100 kilometers away from the North Pole, which makes it the northernmost city in the United States. Over 4,200 people live here in an environment where the temperature will remain below freezing for eight months from early October until late May. The high temperature is only above freezing for around 120 days of the entire year, and there are 160 days of below freezing temperatures every year. However, freezing temperatures and snowfall can happen in any month, including during the summer months of June through August. When the sun sets below the horizon on November 18th or 19th, it won't rise back above the horizon for another 65 days. This is known as the long polar night, and the sun will stay beneath the horizon for about two months. 
The opposite happens during the summertime. When the sun rises on May 11th, it won't set back beneath the horizon again for another 80 or so days. This is known as the Long Midnight Sun, where the town is cast in unending daylight. Despite the permanent presence of the sun, however, the temperature remains very cold, averaging 21.2 degrees Fahrenheit during May and 35.7 degrees in June. July is the warmest month the town experiences all year, with an average high temperature of 47 degrees and an average low of 35 degrees. The highest temperature ever recorded in the town was 79 degrees, while the lowest was negative 56 degrees. But even in July and August, the low temperature will fall beneath the freezing mark for 24 days. Because of its location right next to the Arctic Ocean, Barrow is also one of the cloudiest places on the planet. The town is completely overcast for slightly more than 50% of the entire year, and it's located so far north that if you went to the opposite side of the world from Barrow, you would be located in Antarctica. This point right here is called Point Barrow, and is the northernmost point of the entire mainland North American continent. To stand here is to literally stand at the end of the entire North and South American mainland landmass that begins at the southern tip of South America. To go any further north, you would either have to venture into the icy expanse of the Arctic Ocean or go to the islands of the Canadian archipelago. To get here, however, is somewhat difficult. Barrow is a very remote place, and there are no roads that connect the town to the outside world. It's an isolated community that's impossible to drive into or out of, so the only way in or out for most of the year is to fly through the town's small airport. Despite this incredible isolation, Barrow really is a true town. Inside the city, you can find a post office, a high school, a bank, a police department, a fire department, restaurants, a grocery store, and hundreds of houses. When the ice in the ocean melts during the summer, you can take a boat into town. A large ferry that brings supplies to the town like cars and ATVs comes just once per year during this time. But since the water is frozen for most of the year, getting in by ship is usually impossible, making air travel the only feasible way for not only people to get in or out, but also supplies. Food, gasoline, alcohol, mail, and just about everything else has to be flown into the city. This makes everything in town extremely expensive. From $17 DiGiorno pizzas to $40 bottles of detergent, living in Barrow is not only freezing cold, but also incredibly expensive. I know that this wasn't a usual video for me, and I'm not sure how well that it will go over, so please let me know in the comments if you'd like to see more content like this in the future. Also, when I went to Barrow, I didn't travel alone. I also went with two other YouTube channels that you may already be familiar with, Wendover Productions and Second Thought. If you enjoyed this video, then you should go ahead and check out their videos next. Yeah, $8 for peanut butter. That time is $6.95, right? <laughs> for peanut butter was a lot. But now it's like $8. And with inflation, I'm assuming $10. I mean, you know that most people there that have jobs, they still hunt. Whaling is still part of their job. And they have like whale jerky and blubber jerky and all this stuff there. But um, 
There's a big research facility and it was shocking to see that he didn't have that on his footage. And the research facility is what's interesting. See, the town that exists there is to support that research facility. And they're making some amazing homes that weren't being shown in that area, which is weird. But again, think of how terrifying it is to know that you can only fly out of there. You can't take your little, I guess if you take a snowmobile and you're brave, you can probably <laughs> with a solar, <laughs> solar panel. Anyway, but you know, what is funny. It is always cloudy there. And, it, and I don't mean cloudy, like just the sun. You can't see that there's a slight overcast. It's the ability for you to see, you know, indefinitely. So I remember when I was in Argentina waiting to go to the Falkland Islands, um, I was um, sitting out at a cafe by the beach. And I could see the ocean for as far as my eyes could see. But when I was in Barrow, which I called Bano, Alaska, <laughs> call it, what is it called? The Mandela effect. I couldn't see that far. You would think with the snow reflecting that it would be perpetual. It just felt like it was, there was a wall of fog. I can't explain it in any other way. Uh, and even with binoculars, it was weird. And you know what was really weird? I remember when I was at the research facility, one of the Danes there, um, you know, I pulled out the binoculars. He's like, hey, where'd you get that? And I was like, oh, I always have binoculars. And he kind of looked at me like I'm weird. And I was like, what, you don't? Uh, you know, I made it seem like, yeah, when I travel, I always bring binoculars. I like looking at people through my hotel rooms. And he kind of laughed and I'm like, yeah, I'm like a peeping Tom. I tried to make it funny. But he said that, you know, it's not recommended to look through binoculars because the sun is so radiant that it can blind you and cause harm to your eyes. So we don't recommend, we tell people not to. And I was just like, that's so weird. Why? What do you mean you're not going to use binoculars? How do they spot the whales? <laughs> How do they spot the whales? So, so far, you've seen floating nuclear power plants. You've seen that Russia's doing that, right? And just launched their first one in December of 2021. You saw that Alaska was actually sold to the United States by Russia. And now you know of this uh, place called Bear, Alaska, which I talked about many times. Bano, Barrow, search it on Tori said, you'll find it many times. What does that have to? Well, let me just introduce you to another place, too. Um, let's see. How do we tie this all in? So that way you guys can make some sense in it. Let me see. Is this it? My research interests. Yeah, there we go. Now let's talk about a country that, you know how, you know, I, it's going to sound so wrong. Okay. So, you know, in the United States and Texas, when people want, um, Ah, that sounds so bad. And it doesn't, it's not going to come out right. Let me think of it differently. Showing Greece, right? Um, no, that's not right either. Damn it. Okay, Australia, United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom was created for Australia to keep their prison. It was, it was allegedly Australia, was, when they found it, um, 
because they found New Zealand first because it was Northeast. But remember that professor said that it was, uh, what happened within 400 years? Oh, yeah, that it moved the other way, right? <laughs> what do you call it? Continental drifting. Get the fuck out of here. After what, only 400 years? Shut up. But anyway, we already saw that one. That was weird, right? But let's, let's, let's move it along. Let's not fall into that trap yet. Um, <laughs> but they had Australia. So let's pretend Australia was proximal to the United Kingdom. They would test everything first in Australia. So they threw all the criminals there. They created a prison colony and then they would test diseases, medicines on them, um, you know, new ways of um, reproduction. Uh, they would test new foods. They would test products. They would test kind of like the stuff that the U.S. government does to prisoners but doesn't tell us in our military, you know, like the Pukivsky experiments, you know, stuff like that. Well, and that's kind of how Estonia is for the Finnish. So basically, Finland sees Estonia kind of like the same thing because they kind of talk the same, but they don't talk the same. Their language is very similar. And someone that doesn't, doesn't know how to speak Finnish or doesn't understand Estonian would assume that they speak Finn, but they don't. So Estonia. I've mentioned Estonia before for many reasons. One, because they are the center of smart cities. They are the first one that does everything on blockchain. And not only that, they are the testing ground for everything in Europe. But also, here's the weird thing. A lot of people don't hear a lot about Estonia, but the headquarters for NATO's cyber defense is Estonia. And um, if you remember, Alexander Halderman actually had one of the biggest, you know, talks in regards to uh, digital security in regards to elections because they're using blockchain in Estonia. So let's see what Estonia is. Hi, it is very important that we are able to trust the systems and services that keep our lives together. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest challenges of the information age. Our way of life depends on the safety and security of our information system. My research interests include serious games in cybersecurity and national cybersecurity. Quantum computers threaten today's digital security. While they are not yet available, the design of secure systems needs to prepare for future threats. The task of quantum cryptography is to harden existing systems against quantum computers and to design new secure systems using emerging quantum technologies. Everyone uses mobile devices, computers, and online services, and using this technology should be secure. Modern science improves the security, involving children, parents, and experts, but also policymakers, so that everyone can raise the level of cybersecurity. We call this cyber hygiene. The systems and solutions that we offer to the world have to be resistant to cyber threats, and our people must be able to confront these threats as well. Estonia is a small giant. We deal with cybersecurity at a very high level here. Uh, 
a small giant. Wait, they're using quantum cryptography to protect you from quantum computers. So weird. Oh, even though quantum computers are not available yet, we are developing quantum cryptography to ensure that quantum computers cannot penetrate quantum cryptography. Huh. Sounds like a like a mouthful right there. Super super mouthful. So weird. So now let's get to what the Arctic Council is. Because now the Erdogan stuff is going to make sense. We're bouncing back and forth. So you have some foundation. Uh, so that way you understand what we're talking about. Here we go. The core of the Arctic is a great, mostly frozen ocean surrounded by land. The northern reaches of Europe. Russia and America. All around is the evidence of centuries of winter. In this region of incredible beauty and fragile ecosystems, the plants and animals have found survived the most extreme conditions. People have lived here for thousands of years. They have survived by adapting to the natural environment for their needs. More than four million people call the Arctic their home. Some live in small communities, only accessible by air, while others live in large cities of hundreds of thousands. But home is undergoing profound and rapid change. Temperatures are rising. The resulting changes in the Arctic will fundamentally impact the livelihoods of Arctic inhabitants. Change seen in ecosystems and in access to many areas. Thawing permafrost will create infrastructure challenges. These changes may also lead to new opportunities. As the Arctic sea ice diminishes during the summer, accessibility to Arctic natural resources and sea routes will increase. Those most affected by these changes are the residents of the eight Arctic states, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the United States. Arctic states are working together to respond to these challenges and opportunities. The preeminent for cooperation on Arctic issues is the Arctic Council. The Council was established in Ottawa, Canada in 1996 to address issues of sustainable development and environmental protection in the Arctic. The Council's structure is unique. The Inuit Circumcouncil, the Russian Arctic indigenous peoples of the non-Arctic states and non-governmental organizations also play a role as observers to the Arctic Council. The roots of the Council are in cutting-edge scientific research that values the traditional knowledge of northern inhabitants. The work of the Council is carried out in expert working groups focusing on issues such as climate change, pollution in the Arctic, sustainable development, biodiversity, emergency preparedness, and the living conditions of Arctic residents. Scientific assessments produced within the Arctic climate chain and pollution coming from far away have had on the Arctic. These assessments have contributed to important international agreements, including on persistent organic pollutants and mercury. As interest in the Arctic grows, the Council is evolving to become more of a policy-making body on issues that matter to Northerners. For example, 
a legally binding agreement on Arctic search and rescue, was signed under the auspices of the Arctic Council at the Nook Ministerial Meeting in 2011. How resources are developed here is of crucial importance. The Council has developed Arctic offshore oil and gas guidelines. In 2013, Arctic states concluded an agreement on oil pollution preparedness and response. To help build resilient communities, the Council shares information, best practices, and tools with decision-makers who manage emerging issues, such as adaptation to the impacts of climate change. This is a unique environment. The Council works to ensure it is preserved and that natural resources are utilized in a sustainable way. It's an exciting time in the North. The beauty, vibrancy, transformation, and potential of the region have captured global interest. Through cooperation at the Arctic Council, Arctic states and the permanent participants are taking up the challenge of promoting sustainable development for the benefit of Arctic inhabitants and communities. For more information, please visit arcticcouncil.org. Yeah, and for more information on the Arctic Council meeting where Pompeo was really pissed off that China wanted to be an official observer and conduct research with Russia and other states in the Arctic, you should revisit one of my old shows where we talked about it. You know, because what's funny is while these people are doing all this research, they're actually told this is off limits. You can only go there because it's super dangerous. And, you know, the snowstorm and the fog is just so bad you can't see. So don't go. You know, that's that's how they do it. So uh, let's take a quick break. And while we take this quick break, let's listen to some really great audio. So I'll be right back going to get some coffee. And um, it's, it's going to be a nice uh, little intermission right now. Let's go. I see it as a very positive time. It's a time when the veil is falling down. Everything we've been talking about for the last you know, 20 or 30 years warning people of, it's right there in their face now. They can't deny it anymore. It's no longer a theory. And it is a conspiracy and it's affecting everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're at one of the most important times in human history. I've had to kind of put all my other stuff down. I want to get back into history and talk about all sorts of stuff. But there's just been so much stuff happening every day. It's been difficult to keep up with the, the state of the world. It's just, uh, it's, it's gone to the next level all around the planet. I think a lot of people are seeing this, and that's why we're going to see a lot of people stand up and just say enough is enough. People always think that they're in the minority and they get kind of scared to stand up. So, you know, if people, if people can get over that little hump, I think we're going to reach a tipping point where people are going to realise that it's now or never. They have to stand up. So I think, you know, ultimately this is a test and we're going to get through it. I think the human race will you know, overcome this tyranny eventually. I think we will. There will be some light through it. Maybe they will just, you know, wake up and, and see what's really going on. And we don't need all of them to do it. We just need the people who are awake to get organised and you know, stop bickering with each other and put down their personal differences and get some focus and uh, call these, these governments out for being an abuse of the office that they hold, express a loss of confidence in their ability to govern and dismiss these people, institute real and honest government and lead us back to a point of safety. I think people are seeing the need to do this. There's huge common law groups springing up all around the world. So, you know, perhaps we will see some sort of a pushback. There was a Zoom meeting here in Australia of a common law group and there were like 10,000 people on the Zoom call the other day. So, um, 
it's it's really um, there's an underground movement that's happening, and uh, there's a lot of attempts to undermine that as well. But there is an underground uh, resistance happening. I think it's happening in all countries. Yeah, you know, but we've been trying to wake people up for a few years. I mean, like 30 years I've been screaming from the rooftops. For the last 14, 15 years, I've been online making movies and making videos and doing radio shows and everything I can. We should really be establishing freedom rather than arguing over our belief systems, which is why it was called the truth movement, you know, because everyone has their own truth, you know. I mean, sure, there's an ultimate truth, but who knows what it is until we establish the freedom to find out. So it's kind of been constructed to, to keep us divided. It's time to put all that down and realize we face a clear and present danger. We all have a common enemy and we have a simple solution, which is non-compliance and simply by leading by example in our own community, being the best we can be, being around people and standing tall in the face of all this. I'm taking a backward step. Don't give an inch because if you give an inch, they'll take a mile inch by inch. That's what they do. You know, and, and now's the time that you've got an opportunity to stand up for yourselves stand up for your children if this isn't going to do it then what is you know what is a more worthwhile cause for you to be able to put down all these differences with people and and realize we do face a clear and present danger we do have a common and simple unity would, would fix the whole problem just unify with the people around you do all that you can to help them be a good person and and don't abide by any legislation that causes you to step outside your moral compass do that will change the world in a day and we've got the opportunity to do that now so that's what this is really i mean this is a huge opportunity for human expansion and the expansion of the human spirit this is an opportunity for us to get back to what we should be if we're prepared to take that opportunity and not, not want for someone to come and save us realize that we're all participating in history here we're all participating in making history now, history is made by little people and it's us. So, yeah, it's time to get involved. We are responsible for our own salvation. Anybody who isn't telling you that you, know, you are the answer is very likely controlled opposition. But most people aren't telling you that you are the answer. All we have to do is stop complying. The problem is it's so simple, people can't see the forest for the trees. So they need a leader to go and do it, you know. I'll just listen to Max and he'll do it. I, I can hold his boat and he'll send me the newsletter to tell me when the world's safe to go outside now and I can just go back to my normal mundane life. People don't understand they've got to change that mundane life. Step into your power. Now's the opportunity for you to step into your power. You know, all, all people like myself can do or you or anybody having these radio shows is, is help people find these doorways so they can walk through themselves. Just let them know there's another path. But it's up to them to step onto it. As soon as they do step onto it, the world will change, especially if everybody steps onto it. But if you're, you're constantly doubting people, you know, and oh, you know, I listen to everything this guy says and I like what he says, but there's that one thing he says that I don't like, he must be controlled opposition. That's your belief system. Put all your beliefs down. You don't know what the truth is. Nobody knows what the truth is. You know, I've been researching this my whole life. I don't know what the truth is. I've got a pretty good idea about a lot of stuff. But I'm not going to say this is because I don't know. I don't have the freedom to know. And ultimately, all of these rabbit holes and questions exist and all these character flaws and all this stuff that you think is in people exist because you're programmed into this belief, you know, and you're not free. You're not free enough to find out. So let's just establish freedom. All we've got to do is realize who and what we are. And, and we're there. That's it. That's the key to the whole thing. 
You know, like I said, it's so simple. People simply can't see the forest for the trees. So, you know, when someone's oh, controlled opposition, I just I just take it with a grain of salt. I listen to, to what they say. You know, I'll take from it what makes sense. I'll put that on the shelf and I'll, I'll find other stuff that works. And okay, I'll put that on the same shelf until the picture builds itself. You know, you paint the canvas black. You just paint it black and, and let people paint their own picture and they will, and then you'll eventually see them for what they are. You don't need anybody else's influences to tell you. You can hear it with your heart if you listen in the right in the right way. The truth is in your own heart. You know what you need to be focusing on is is yourself and the power that you have. You know any anybody who's telling you, well, there's this group we're putting together this this organisation. We're going to save things for you. They're very likely controlled opposition. But, you know, if, if it's about you and, and, and realising that we're just dealing with people, there is no such thing on earth as little people. That's what I always say to people when, when people give me these titles and say I'm this and I'm that and I'm this guru or whatever. No, I'm just Max. That's the point. I'm a nobody. I'm a, I'm a guitar player who lives in a shed, you know. You don't have to be somebody special. That's a program. All you've got to do is be prepared to speak and realize that what you're dealing with is just other people and you don't actually have to do what you're told. If you want to get religious about it, okay, well, God created man and gave man dominion over the earth. That's you. Okay, that's you. Man created government. Government created, you know, man created society. Society created government. Government created politicians and laws and police. And they're way down the food chain from you. There is no one between you and God. Why would you ever think anybody has any authority over you and you have to do what you're told and walk between these lines and do all this stuff and comply with wrong behavior every day of your life? Because as soon as you stop doing that, the world changes. It's really that simple. You know, you don't need anyone to form any organization, have any trials for these people, reform any of this or groups or even the whole common law stuff. I mean, all this stuff is just to get people to understand that, you know, they don't have to comply with all this rubbish politicians create. So it's a stepping stone. But ultimately, you know, when you get to, to realize what you are, that's above it all. That's above the whole thing. It's above common law. It's above everything. It's life itself. So true. All we need is unity and to stop bickering and stop trying to play within their freaking goalposts and just be like, no, nope, I'm awake now. Thanks. Let's have, let me rickroll all of you just for a second. Okay. It's necessary. Let's go. Wait, 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 wait. This is the song. We need to jump into the next part of this segment. Once upon a time, not so long ago, we're no strangers to love. You know the rules, and so do I. I full commitments while I'm thinking of. You wouldn't get this from any other guy. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling. Gotta make you understand. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling Gotta make you understand Never gonna give you up Never gonna let you down Never gonna run around and desert you Never gonna make you cry Never gonna say goodbye Never gonna tell a lie And hurt you 
Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down. Never gonna run around and desert you. Never gonna make you cry. Never gonna say goodbye. Never gonna tell you Exactly. They should never be able to keep you down. They smack you down. You're like, you hit like a little girl. I'm coming right back. That's the way all of us should be. So I hope all of you started dancing after that. You know, this guy is like my spirit animal. I think I heard him and I didn't even know his name until uh, a couple weeks ago. I think I heard him oh, years ago talking about unity. And I was thinking, wow, you know, this guy is talking to a world where everyone wants to have control over something. I mean, you guys can see it on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram. Everyone's telling you who's everybody when they don't even know them. Like they probably seen a picture of them, right? <laughs> they talk about what they talk about Trump. They talk about Biden. They talk about Kamala. They talk about General Flynn. They talk about Patrick Byrne. They talk about me. They talk about you. They talk about everyone like they know what they're talking about and they make themselves sound. Oh yeah. Look, look at me. I, I like did this research and, uh, and you got to listen to me because uh, you know, I'm a man and, and I know, you know, I hear that shit and I'm just like, this is why the world is so horrible because they expect a title and a tiara and they are the ones that are telling you how you should respond, how you must sit in a box, how you should either pick the GOP or the DNC. And you're just like, why do I have to pick any of them? I don't understand. What do you mean I have to? Oh, we're going to reform it. Why? So we can keep the same cages. That means you are still not getting what the problem really is here. But anyway, now let's get back to what we were talking about. So, so far I showed you how Putin's creating floating nuclear reactors, non-nuclear powered ships, a reactor that's creating power so it can power something else. Okay. Because we all have nuclear powered ships spaceships, satellites, you name it. And the weird thing is we also have a massive nuclear facility underground. I think it's east of fuel in um, Greenland. <laughs> so weird, so weird. But anyway, the reasons that I wanted to bring this up is I actually had this conversation with Patrick over dinner Um and, you know, it's nice when I catch him in a, in, in a spot where he just, you know, I love picking his brain. Why? He comes from a completely different lifestyle. And so do I, of course. And, I, you know, watching him over the years, just observing him in the capacity of being used, obviously, um, you just you just know in your gut, you can feel it when someone is is good at their core. They may do stupid shit. A lot of good people do stupid shit. Okay. Let's be fair. People do a lot of stupid things. And there's a lot of people that say things and do things and then they regret it. And they're just like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. So dumb. You know, they do. They do. They do. But what they don't realize is, is that they're, they're, they're not hurting anyone else but themselves more than anything. Um, so, Let's get back to it. So you found out that Russia sold Alaska to the U.S. for $7.2 million. That's pretty much a steal. Actually, a tender was made in 
1864, we were going through, you know, a civil war. And Lincoln was like, yo, I don't have the capacity for that right now. Okay. <laughs> We've got this. And, um, you know, and then the sale completed in 1867, uh, we got that. We made our money tenfold. You live in Alaska. They pay you to live there. You learned about this, uh, you know, Inu Inuit. Uh, the Inuit tribe is actually the one that's all the way up north in Barrow slash Bano, Alaska, where there's a massive research facility and mansions that nobody's talking about, uh, where there's like a severe fog that you can't see things, right? <laughs> you can't see things. And, um, you know, nuclear energy and, and Estonia being the center of quantum cryptography. But we don't have quantum computers. Well, that's what they tell you. <laughs> so weird. Quantum computers. You don't have them. Because, you know, if you do have one, you're not supposed to tell. You know, that's not, mm, operators never divulge, right? So um, the Arctic Council, as explained, uh, you know, in that, you know, slight video was great. I think we need just one more explanation with a little bit of Sharpie marker to kind of just make it drill in uh, just to understand the outlines and how it works uh, so that you understand what's happening. Because you're going to you're going to see some stuff. You're like, wait a minute. I didn't know we were doing that. Yeah. Well, and it's recent. So you're going to be like, OK, I, I, I don't know how I didn't know that. It is Alaska that makes the U.S. an Arctic nation. And this is a big year for Alaska and Arctic-y type stuff in general, since the U.S. assumed chairmanship of the Arctic Council earlier this year. Arctic Council. What exactly is that, you say? That's a really good question. For starters, the Arctic Council is one of literally dozens of governmental policy-tilted Arctic discussion groups. How confusing, we know. But arguably, it's the Arctic Forum with the most chutzpah. Only states with a foothold in the Arctic, in the literal sense, can be members of the Arctic Council. There are eight of them. Canada, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, which represents Greenland, Russia, Sweden, and the good old red, white, and blue, the United States. Non-Arctic nations can also have a voice on the Arctic Council, albeit a much smaller one. Those nations are called permanent observers, and there are lots of them. There's a process to becoming a permanent observer, but we're not going to get into that right now. Also on the council are six groups that represent the interests of the indigenous peoples of the north. In Arctic Council lingo, these groups are called permanent participants. Neither the permanent participants nor the permanent observers have decision-making power. That falls solely to the council's eight member states. So what does it mean that the U.S. is the council's chair? Well, there are a lot of boring parts to that, like the U.S. has to do all the administrative aspects of the council, things like organizing meetings, distributing reports, etc. But as the chair, the U.S. also gets to largely set the tone and direction of Arctic Council summits. It's using its two years in the spotlight to make headway on three declared objectives, improving the well-being of Arctic communities, bolstering marine stewardship in the Arctic Ocean, and addressing the impacts of climate change. Phew, that's a tall order. The exciting part for Alaska in all this hoopla is the chance to be the landing spot for some of these big meetings. Over the next two years, meetings for the Arctic Council bigwigs are scheduled in Anchorage, Barrow, Fairbanks, Unalaska, Kotzebue, Juneau, and China Hot Springs. Yowzers! At the end of all these meetings and talks and collaborative efforts, the torch will get passed yet again to the next council member in queue, Finland. Oh, Finland is the next member, right? Well, and then after Finland, another one, and then another one. So why is this important? Well, 
you know, unbeknownst to many, for the past couple of months, NATO, including our forces, have been doing some weird exercises. And you're just like, why is NATO all up in the Arctic, you know, training during the Ukrainian war? What'd you say, Tori? Yeah. See, you missed that. On NATO's doorstep, the alliance is holding its largest military exercise in the Arctic since the Cold War. U.S. Marines joining around 30,000 troops from more than two dozen countries for land, air and sea drills in Norway to prepare for any enemy aggression in the high north. It's called cold response. And NBC's Courtney Kuby has an exclusive front row seat. Tonight, troops from NATO countries are descending across Europe. 30,000 are now in a remote coastal corner of Norway, nearly 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. Today's scenario Norway being attacked by another nation. NATO responds, invoking Article 5 of the 1949 treaty stating an attack on one of NATO's 30 members is an attack on all. The first and only time it was ever invoked was 9-11. On hand for today's exercises, troops from 27 countries. Most of these Marines just came ashore yesterday. Their mission? Link up with other Marines and NATO allies to begin the part of the exercise where they attack the enemy. Simulated attacks coming from air, land, and sea. This is Cold Response 22, a military exercise where NATO partners must work together in frigid conditions. In the continental, you know, 48 states, weather's not as extreme as here in the high north, so um, getting us that exposure is really nice because there's a lot to learn, that's for sure. Today's drills were planned months before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's naive to think that it's not on people's minds, so... Absolutely, they're tracking it, and so are we, but the exercise is completely separate. The dangers of operating in this type of harsh environment evident last week when an Osprey crashed during a training exercise, killing the four U.S. Marines on board. They know their best friends or remains are on their way back to the U.S. and their families are grieving. Here, the, the challenge, as always, is to stay focused on the training on the mission at hand. A mission preparing them for real-world scenarios. And as the war unfolds in Europe, the stakes feel even higher. Tensions here in Eastern Europe remain extremely high. And while this exercise is conducted every other year, this one has taken on not only new meaning, but new urgency. Shep? Courtney, thank you. So, oh, not only new meaning, but... (laughs) So weird. You know who's chairing the Arctic Council right now, you guys? It's freaking Russia. Until 2023, Russia is in charge of the Arctic Council. They're the chair. Just letting you know. Just letting you know. It's just so weird. So why are we having this conversation? Well, now let's hop over to Sweden, having this conversation with Boris Johnson. And, and you know, it's so freaking weird. I want you guys to listen to what she says. All, and it's a pleasure for me to welcome Prime the Prime Minister, Minister Boris Johnson to Sweden, and particularly to uh, Halvsund. I'm very happy to, to have you here. And uh, our countries have strong ties, and I value our cooperation and close relations. And there is a mutual desire to deepen our cooperation, not at least on foreign security and defense policy, but also on trade and research, just to name a, a few areas. And in times of crisis, cooperation becomes even more important. And this applies not least for our international defense partnerships. 
and Sweden's partnerships with the UK and with NATO have been crucial during these exceptional times. And I greatly appreciate the strong support your government has expressed for uh, our security and our right to make our own security policy choices. And today we are taking another step to strengthening our bilateral defense and security cooperation at the strategic level. And I'm happy that you have come here today for the signing of our bilateral political declaration of solidarity. And the Prime Minister and I have agreed to face challenges in peace, crisis and conflict together. And if either country should suffer a disaster or an attack, the United Kingdom and Sweden will assist each other in a variety of ways. The support will be given on request from the affected country and may include military resources. The declaration serves crucial pur purpose regardless of the choices Sweden will make in terms of our security policy in the future. And President Putin thought he could cause division, but he has achieved the opposite. We stand here today, more united than ever, and with the ambition of strengthening our bonds even more. And the Russia, Russian aggression against Ukraine has been met with incredible bravery from the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian leaders, but also by a unanimous condemnation and firm response from the entire transatlantic community and beyond. And I look forward to continuing our close cooperation and our bilateral relations, uh, but also on robust actions to put pressure on Russia and support in support of Ukraine. So please, Boris, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Prime Minister Anderson. Thank you, Magdalena. And thank you for having me your absolutely beautiful Harpsund uh, retreat. Uh, 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 breathtaking and uh, great to be back in Sweden. All right. Did you guys hear what she said? Even military. Even military. So she just said they signed an agreement that if they go to war, the United Kingdom, then Sweden will back them. And if Sweden goes to war, then the UK will back them. Hmm. Not NATO. This is something else. This is important. Why? Well, because Boris had the same conversation with the Finn too. So that's weird. Here's the Finns. And now follow statements by the President and uh, Prime <coughs> Minister, President Minister, please. Thank you. First of all, Mr. Prime Minister Boris, thank you. It's very valuable to have you here. And uh, we have had a very good conversation, continuing that we already started in London. At the Jeff. Yep. <laughs> in Jeff. Uh, <clears throat> I've learned that uh, one always measures friendships by how they show up in bad weather. They say this is attributed to Winston Churchill. Maybe you know better whether that is <laughs> or not. But nevertheless, it describes the situation today in Europe. We are great friends, Finland and uh, UK, and uh, strong security partners. We signed joint statement. Uh, we will stand together 
and support each other in any circumstances, in good and bad weather. Deepen the cooperation we already have in CHEF specifically on defense, hybrid threats, other critical areas of security. That's what we are doing. Uh, here in Finland, we appreciate UK's strong support to NATO's open door policy and Finland's potential membership. That is uh, also very valuable to us. And I told that uh, after my visit in London, it was very encouraging for us to hear your opinions and your support. Um, these decisions, they strengthen our own security here in Finland and that of Europe and that of, uh, of uh, the whole NATO world, uh, especially if we join. For us, uh, joining NATO would be not against anybody. We would like to maximize, maximize our security in way or another while thinking uh, membership in NATO. But it is not a zero-sum game. If Finland increases its uh, security, it's not away from anybody else. Uh, we have both uh, condemned uh, the Russian war warfare in Ukraine. We have both been helping Ukraine and Ukrainian people and to continue that. With these words, please. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. President uh, uh, Sali uh, Ninisto, and thank you very much for hosting me today. It is wonderful to be here in Helsinki this evening at a pivotal moment in our shared history. It's pivotal because, as I also discussed uh, with colleagues, with uh, the Prime Minister Anderson in Sweden, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed the equation of European security, and it has rewritten our reality and reshaped our future. We've seen the end of the post-Cold War period, and the invasion of Ukraine, sadly, has opened a new chapter. And that invasion has already failed for two reasons. Firstly, because of the unbreakable spirit of the Ukrainian people who have fought back and rallied the world behind them. And second, because that Ukrainian a struggle for freedom, that heroic fight, has brought the world together in condemnation of this assault on uh, our values. And it would be fair to say that it has also brought Finland, Finland and the UK even closer together today. So the security declaration, the solemn declaration we've signed today, ensures that our two, our two nations can intensify our partnership and take it to unparalleled heights, both latitudinal and metaphorical. From the high north uh, to the Baltics and beyond, our armed forces will train, operate, and exercise together. 
marrying our defense and security capabilities and formalizing a pledge that we will always come to one another's aid. Because this is... Okay. So now, Finland and Sweden have signed bilateral agreements directly with the United Kingdom to support them if ever they go into war. That's so weird. And the question is, why are people getting so... Their panties in a twist in regards to them getting in there? Well, now we need to look at Estonia. So we're going to jump to Estonia now that you've concluded to that. Now, a very good friend of mine, very smart friend of mine, who I consider an angel to me, um, also mentioned that Macron, and that was really weird, said that, you know, he sounds like the <laughs> like those idiots that think that the GOP can be fixed. Um, he said, well, we're going to make a new, more, better EU. And it's like he just freaking lost it. What's this new EU? Well, let's get to Estonia and then let's jump back to Finland. So take a listen to this. What is Estonia? Where to come from? What about this country? From my favorite geography now, guys. Once upon a time, there was a nerdy girl in school who was always getting picked on. One day, the school had a talent show. She took off her glasses and sang with a passion beyond all comprehension. Every guy asked her out after that. That's basically Estonia. It's time to learn geography now! Hey everyone, I'm your host, Barbie. Welcome back to Europe! And we have reached our first country in the Baltic, Estonia. This is gonna get good, trust me. But first... Estonia is without a doubt Europe's little wild card. You never know what you're going to get with these people, but they always seem to surprise you. First of all, Estonia is classified as a North European country. Do not call them Eastern as it has former USSR connotations that they do not want to be affiliated with. Located on the Baltic Sea, just a short ferry ride south below their brothers in Finland, bordered by Russia to the east and Latvia to the south. The country is divided into 15 counties, or Makunad, with the capital Tallinn, located in the north just on the Gulf of Finland in the Baltic. However, it's been said that the country kind of rotates capitals around the year as Tartu is considered the cultural capital with its juxtaposition of classic and postmodern architecture and a myriad of conceptually abstract statues. And then there's Parnu considered the summer capital with its rock and beach and bonfire parties. These three cities also host the largest airports. The country owns over 2,200 islands and islets and the largest ones being Sarima and Hiuma which act as their own counties. When it comes to their borders with Russia, things get a little weird. To this day, many maps of Estonia in Estonia still include the areas of East Narva or Ivanograd with the two opposing castles facing each other on the river, and the South Petseri or Petserima region, which were respectively annexed by Russia, technically, but there's still an ownership dispute, kind of. It's it's weird. Not only that, but there are also some strange border disparities, like the Narva River waterway exit into the largest lake, Lake Peipus or Peipsi, <laughs> Peipsi, the largest transboundary lake in Europe. And then there's the Satse Boot, a part of Russia that overlaps the Estonian 178 road for only 900 meters. Drivers from Estonia are not required to carry permits when passing through on car, but they're not allowed to pass on foot or stop by and pick any of the mushrooms. The Latvian border is pretty simple and straightforward until you get to the town of Valga, in which you get another Haskell Library incident in which the entire town is split in half by the border running straight through streets and roads. Speaking of roads, in the wintertime when the Baltic freezes over, a charming little miracle happens. Estonia gains the world's longest ice road that travels from the mainland to Hiuma Island in the west. The road is about 26 kilometers long and operates between January and March when the ice is just thick enough to carry the weight of most vehicles. Speaking of roads again, Estonia has strict 
strict rules on wearing reflective clothing at night. If you are caught at night not wearing something that helps others see you, you could get up to 400 euros in a fine. Otherwise, Estonia is quite a charming place with quaint towns and saunas everywhere, and clear Wi-Fi can be found even in the most remote areas in the country, even in the middle of the forest, which is actually kind of growing pretty fast. Let's explain in... Okay, I didn't really think it was going to be this easy, but one way you can remember what a stony uh is like is that it's really actually kind of stony. Found in the lush forests and meadows, Estonia is actually home to more giant boulders than any other European nation, over 60 of which have diameters over 30 meters wide, all of which protected by the government. Not only that, but Estonia also has more meteorite craters per square kilometer than anywhere else in Europe for some reason. The most notable ones being the Kali craters on Sarema Island and the massive 8 kilometer wide Neugrund crater under the sea with impact residue pieces found all over the coast of Osumar in the north. And not only that, but Estonia is also Europe's largest shale oil producer, second in the world after China, with most of the rocky deposits found along the north and northeastern parts of the country. By the way, little side note. Shale oil is an unconventional source of fuel in which the oil is trapped in rock fragments and extracted in a process that adds hydrogen to remove impurities. Simply put, Estonia is pretty lush and beautiful. They're actually going through a reforestation phase right now, partially thanks to the declining population, in which now over half of the entire country, some numbers estimate over 60%, is covered in forest. Estonia is generally flat. I mean, the highest point, Surmunamagi, or Egg Mountain, is only 318 meters tall. And at over 1,400, they have a ton of lakes and even more small ponds. The rest of the country is comprised of open bogs, fens, and wetlands. They're never short in supply of fresh boggy mud. And waterfalls, oh my gosh, some amazing ones like in Balaste, Yagala, and Keayoa Falls are some of the most pristine, magnificent nature sites. But definitely try not to miss out on the national animal, this charming blue barn swallow. In terms of produce, Estonia is a very hearty meat and potatoes type of country, with national dishes like blood sausage and lingonberries, and raim or Baltic dwarf herring. They love that hard liquor, and it comes really cheap too. Because the alcohol is expensive and highly regulated by their government, Finnish people typically take the 45-minute ferry to Estonia simply to just buy cheap alcohol and come back. I'm not even joking. Oh, Estonia, you people are so unique. Let's tell the world who you are. Ah, Estonia, you want so bad to be labeled as Nordic. You're so close, but yeah, not quite there. First of all, the country has about 1.3 million people and has seen a 19% population decline in the past two decades. The country is made up of nearly 70% of people that identify as ethnically Estonian. About 23% of the country is Russian, and the remainder are mostly Ukrainians, Finns, and other people groups. The national currency is the euro. They use the type F outlet and drive on the right side of the road. Estonians speak Estonian, a Uralic-based language in the same group as Finnish. Hungarian is technically a far off distant cousin that they kind of lost contact with. Almost every Estonian I talked to has said that they can probably understand Finnish better than the Finns can understand them due to the fact that they have regular access to Finnish TV, whereas the Finns don't have Estonian. If they listen very hard, they might be able to have like a very basic conversation with each other. However, to speed things up, they usually just speak English. By the way, Estonia is fairly English friendly as it is taught in schools and most of the younger generation can carry on a decent conversation. Now, culture-wise, Estonia may be small, but it's packed with detail. First of all, throughout history, they were either subject to the Danes, Swedes, and the Germans, or the Russians, until finally they gained independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, literally by singing. Seriously. In 1987, Estonia was the first Soviet republic to defy the Soviet army, and they started to gather in huge crowds and spontaneously started singing Estonian national songs, which were strictly forbidden. And without any bloodshed, 
eventually won their independence. They gained freedom through song, which is why it's no surprise that at over 133,000, Estonia has the largest collection of written folk songs out of any country in the world. They take singing seriously here. And swinging! Estonians invented the sport of kiking, which is like when a person gets on a swing with solid arms made of steel with the objective to swing an entire 360 degrees around the fulcrum. Today, Estonia has developed dramatically from its former years. Estonia is a highly tech-savvy country with more startups per capita than anywhere else in Europe. They invented Hotmail, Kaza, and Skype, which was pretty much invented by Estonians. I mean, there was a Sweden and a Dane involved somewhere, but the Estonians did pretty much all of the programming. Now, here's the thing. To this day, Estonia has the highest prevalence of females to males in the world with 0.84 men for every one woman. It's been said the reasoning behind this is because so many of the men were killed during the Soviet times, leaving an influx of women behind. To this day, Estonia also has the highest number of international fashion models per capita in the world. I mean, after all those years of getting the pick of the litter, I guess Estonians bred some really attractive people. Unfortunately, Estonia also has one of the highest unmarried and single parent ratios in Europe as well. Part of this has to do with the fact that Estonia disputedly has the lowest importance of religion on any country in Europe, as less than 20% claim to be affiliated with any religion at all. Therefore, many people don't really see a need for marriage as grounds to define the relationship as it has just social and sometimes even religious institutional connotations that has no bearings on their lives, and they choose to just kind of bypass it altogether. To this day, many Estonian children are raised by a single parent who may cohabit with another partner, but almost likely will never get married. Which is funny because they really do well at wife-carrying competitions. We'll explain more about that in the Finland episode. But we will talk more about Finland in... Okay, so since the fall of the Soviet Union, Estonia has pretty much re-revolutionized the entire way that they engage with outsiders. In 2004, they joined the European Union and quickly gained ties to the Nordic countries that they've longed to unite with for, like, forever. Iceland was actually the first country to recognize their independence, and Estonians to this day even consider themselves Nordic. Although the term is kind of debatable with other Nordic countries. Again, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Estonia actually kind of still kept close ties with all the other former states that also gained independence, like in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, as well as the Caucasus region regions, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. It was kind of like, hey, remember the old days when big old Russia used to control us? Well, not anymore. High five, bro. Lithuania and Latvia are kind of like the two friends that they used to play with in the sandbox when they were kids, but then they kind of grew up and kind of stopped hanging out. Lithuania and Latvia are kind of like, Estonia, just accept the fact that you are Baltic, not Nordic. Join us. Their best friends, however, would have to be Finland. Finland is kind of like the bigger brother that has always loved his little sister, but hated seeing her get tossed around from empire to empire. They share the same cultures and general life values and have always been there for each other as the last surviving Uralic peoples on the planet. In conclusion, if Europe was acquired, Estonia would be like that one girl who didn't get any solos, but then gets to sing that one high note that causes the whole crowd to give her a standing ovation. Stay tuned. Ethiopia is coming up next. I could not have planned that perfectly because we're going to be talking about Ethiopia and the Brain Project and Epstein next week. <laughs> so that was really weird. <laughs> but now that you know more about Ethio Ethiopia, Estonia, let's go into what this getting into NATO thing has to do with the Arctic and why Putin and Turkey and even nations like India are getting really concerned. Take a listen. Pleasure to, to host you. Uh, we uh, generally agree in, in all aspects uh, with the, 
uh, your presentation. Uh, we very much welcome uh, the uh, Finnish uh, decision to join NATO, hopefully also accompanied by um, uh, the Swedish uh, um, uh, move of the same same kind. It is good to have this uh, parallel, certainly as uh, person of the north of Poland, I, I particularly uh, welcome uh, this, uh, but also as rapporteur of and European Parliament of rapporteur for Arctic, I, I look forward to, to further cooperation with Sweden and contribution of Sweden uh, in this respect, taking into account also rising uh, uh, threats posed to, 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 to global security by, by most of the uh, Russian Federation in uh, this region. Uh, actually, Finland uh, um, can be perceived as... as uh, uh, already now very much uh, a NATO ally, although this partnership uh, and credibility of Finland was, uh, has been and still is so, so high that uh, I think it, it changes a lot. And certainly uh, NATO accession of fin Finland means changes to 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 uh, security of of Europe uh, it's uh, and probably poses uh, one of the best responses of collective west to 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 vicious uh, actions taken by 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 criminal vicious actions taken by kremlin in ukraine but also in blackmailing the west by 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 well known uh, proposals to 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 uh, and pressures to to neighborhood to uh, countries of of my region uh, in particular to to baltic states poland romania uh, but also um, countries like Moldova. So very uh, I, I very much welcome policy of Finland. We we stay united. I would like to pose the question about uh, Arctic and uh, please briefly tell us uh, about your perception now in view in the context of war in Finland. Uh, about uh, security situation of Arctic. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Minister. You're absolutely right that the accession of Finland is a game changer, not only in the Baltic region, but also in the Arctic region. It has nothing to do with the Arctic, of course. This war is all about Ukraine, right? Has nothing to do with what's really going on. It has nothing to do with that. Huh, you know, so dumb. I'm so dumb. I mean, how am I drawing these conclusions? It makes no sense. But anyway, let's look at this one. <laughs> what is it called? Nordic security perspectives. Cybersecurity, Nordic security in the Arctic. Like, why? 
Why are we even having this conversation? Let's see. They'll tell us. Very uh, honored to be invited to to this panel, and uh, also very happy that the that there's an interest in hearing about the perspectives from uh, Greenlandic researchers. Uh, I want to start out by saying that uh, the war in Ukraine and the invasion of Ukraine uh, has uh, put Greenland in a situation where we see a very, very clear uh, message from the government of Greenland in um, being clearly part of the Western alliance. We saw that uh, immediately after the invasion of Ukraine uh, was initiated. And uh, through the sanctions that were imposed on Russia, which uh, the government of Greenland immediately also joined. I will not say that that is a new thing or an, an unexpected thing, but it is an interesting thing that it comes out that clearly. We also saw very clear messages from Greenland on a wish to be a very close partner to the US uh, when the US Secretary of State uh, Blinken visited Greenland uh, very early in, in both the government of Greenland's term and the US government's term. And here we also saw very, very clear messages uh, from the government of Greenland that Greenland is part of the democratic world, sharing those values. So that is sort of the starting point. And I wanted also to touch upon three um, perspectives that makes all of this very complex. And I will talk about this generally for the Arctic, but with Greenland as a specific case. So as we have heard today and, and all, all know, uh, the Arctic has been uh, highly institutionalized. And this institutionalization is now, to say it mildly, very challenged with the pause in the Arctic. Okay, I just want to pause it just for a second. Again, this is about the Ukraine, but they're talking about the Arctic Please pay attention because when you're listening to other people give you an analysis, they obviously don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Again, let's move it along, right? No, I can't tell you. You have to see it. They're talking about Ukraine, but it has to do with the Arctic. The fact that Finland and Sweden are the only missing parts, you have to think. And people are like, NATO, UN, oh my God, which one, which one? Oh, guys. Accept all and it all comes. Just be like, yeah, I, it's kind of like, oh, I was going to say something that's rated R. I'm going to keep that to myself. Um, it's kind of like, uh, oh man. Have you guys ever, when you were younger, been out with friends and you had a drink or you took a hit of a joint or something? And then, you know, you're there and you're like resisting the drunk, resisting the high. But there was some point when you were young when you're like, yeah, okay, I'm going to dance and I'm going to be on this dance floor and I'm going to just embrace all the suck and just dance and embrace it. Okay, so please embrace this information. Embrace it. Uh, highly, highly institutionalized. institutionalized. And this institutionalization is now, to say it mildly, very challenged with the pause in the Arctic Council. Um, what I think we need to be more aware of in talking about the Arctic Council is the unique structure of the Arctic Council seen from the perspective of Arctic peoples. Because as an institution in the Arctic, 
as a forum for cooperation, the Arctic Council has right from the beginning included the six uh, permanent participants, so the indigenous peoples organizations representing Arctic peoples, but it has also made sure that there was space, for example, for self-governing nations such as Greenland to be at the table. There was a period in during a Swedish chairmanship uh, some uh, about 10 years back where there was a dispute on that and Greenland boycotted the Arctic Council. But the fact that this unique structure has been there from the start in the Arctic Council is something that we must bring with us in our search for solutions to how then now, during this war, collaborate in the Arctic. Because what we are seeing now, and that is my first point, is that we are trying to build, or the states are trying to build new platforms of cooperation that do not necessarily build on that unique structure of inclusion of the Arctic peoples themselves. And that poses a challenge to the legitimacy of decision-making in the Arctic. And this is where I have written something in this PhD project that I'm working on. The legitimacy, the question of legitimacy in decision-making, it is a specific challenge in the, in the relation between Greenland and Denmark and the Faroe Islands and Denmark. And it is a specific challenge also on matters of foreign policy and security or even defense. The situation for a lot of uh, former colonial uh, relations, uh, for example, also for Greenland as a post-colonial society with some degree of self-determination, uh, is that for states, there's not very um, sound traditions of making sure that the peoples of the Arctic, for example, Greenland, takes part in the decision-making on, for example, foreign policy, security and defense issues. Foreign policy has been a, a special situation for Greenland because that is where we have seen through the years that Greenland has widened its, what I would call a room for maneuver on international relations. But on the security and, and defense side, it is, it's more difficult. And this of course has to do with uh, the state of Denmark having a constitution that is very clear on who holds responsibility on these areas as well. But in practical terms, it does pose legitimacy issues if Arctic peoples and, for example, the government of Greenland is not at the table or if the voice is not heard. So um, as part of that first point, um, the conclusion for me is that there's a very serious challenge that we must take seriously in regards to when we talk about the future of the Arctic in this terrible situation of conflict, who do we invite to the table? Who do we invite to speak? And here, the government of Greenland is a very important voice because it has maintained and developed a, a very high degree of self-determination. Both that, but also because decisions that are taken in the parliament of Greenland by the government of Greenland they also impact the development in the Arctic and they also impact the security development as we have seen, for example. Seriously. Is it because Russia is chairing the Arctic Council that they're upset? Let me just remind you something. Greenland is an okay name for a country, but what about if we call it Trumpland instead? Huh? Hmm? 
Here's one for you. Donald Trump wants to buy Greenland. Now, that is not a sentence from an Onion article, although, honestly, you could be forgiven if you initially made that mistake. This president, the most unorthodox resident of the world, White House in modern history is actually apparently interested in buying Greenland, the world's largest island that is currently owned by another country, Denmark. Denmark essentially owns it. We're very good allies with Denmark. We protect Denmark like we protect large portions of the world. So The concept came up and I said, certainly I'd be strategically, it's interesting and we'd be interested, but we'll talk to them a little bit. Like, what? Why would Trump want Greenland? Is it even for sale? And is Greenland the one with the ice? Or is that the one that is green? These are all good questions. And as my teachers always reminded me, there are no stupid questions-ish. So allow me to answer some of the biggies. Question number one. Why the heck would the U.S. want to purchase Greenland? Okay, let's start with this. Reminder, Greenland is an island in the Arctic, which is 80% covered by an ice shelf. Less than 60,000 people actually live there. So the most obvious reason to buy Greenland is that Greenland is widely believed to be hugely rich in natural resources, including iron ore, lead, zinc, diamonds, gold, rare earth elements, uranium, and oil, sweet, sweet oil. And much of it is currently untapped due to the fact that, well, I just said this, 80% of the country is covered by ice. But due to global warming, which Trump has previously said is nothing more than a Chinese conspiracy, that ice sheet is melting rapidly. This summer, NASA scientists observed two of the largest melts in the history of Greenland. And that erosion of the ice sheet is expected to make the mining of the country's natural resources much more doable. So the second why Greenland reason is geopolitical. The United States already has a foothold in the country. Thule Air Base, and as the Wall Street Journal, which broke the Greenland purchase story initially, noted, quote, located 750 miles north of the Arctic Circle, it includes a radar station that is part of a U.S. ballistic missile early warning system. The base is also used by the U.S. Air Force Space Command and the North American Aerospace Defense Command, end quote. Okay, the third reason. Trump, you, you may have observed this, is a man very interested in his legacy in office. Buying Greenland would be a major bullet point on his presidential resume. I mean, if Andrew Johnson got Alaska, why can't Donald Trump have Greenland? Question number two. Is Greenland actually for sale? That seems like... See... This is where they start talking shit. First of all, it was Lincoln that negotiated the buy of Alaska. It just happened after. Here's how they change history and they just tell you things you want. But then he's telling you about fuel. He's not talking about Camp Century and how decades ago when it was freaking colder and there was no such thing as global warming and nothing was melting and no one was losing their shit. Right? Right? Uh, we actually have a top secret U.S. military. I've told you I've been to Greenland, right? I, I did. I did. Let me let me take you to this place, Camp Century. Show you where it is. 
please. I think it's important that people see it so they understand it. When people talk shit, it's, it's literally east. It's underground. Let me show you. Camp Century is 150 sure miles from Thule, its nearest base of supply. This is an ideal Arctic laboratory. For more than 90% of Greenland is permanently frozen under a polar ice cap which covers all but a few coastal areas of the island. Camp Century is buried below the surface of this ice cap. Beneath it, the ice descends for 6,000 feet. In this remote setting, less than 800 miles from the North Pole, Camp Century is a symbol of man's unceasing struggle to conquer his environment, to increase his ability to live and fight if necessary under polar conditions. This is the story of Camp Century, the city under ice. It was in May 1959, after more than a year of preparation, that a small party of army engineers conducted the final search to select a site for Camp Century. Listen now to the voice of Captain Tom Evans, the young officer who was in charge of the construction of the camp. This was the day we really got underway. Colonel Kirkering, commanding officer of the United States Army Polar Research and Development Center, was with me when we made the final reconnaissance. We needed a flat surface, a level with less than one degree of slope. This would minimize construction problems by enabling us to keep all of our tunnels on the same level. We finally picked this plateau, a smooth white plain of ice for as far as you could see. This was the closest location to Thule, our supply base, which would not be affected by the summer thaw. That first day, we set out flags marking the boundaries of the camp. This is rugged country. Nothing lived on the ice cap. Not even seal or caribou survived in this climate. Our job was to cross 150 miles of ice much of it split by crevasses, and then build a city under the ice, experimenting with new concepts of polar construction. It was several weeks later, at a point where the ice cap sloped down to a narrow strip of barren land along the coast, that our supplies began rolling in by truck for transfer to sleds. To make this transfer possible, we'd had to build a three-mile road up onto the edge of the ice cap. We brought in everything this way. Construction materials, steel arches, clothing, nails, steel beams, prefabricated houses, lumber, food, even ice cream. In the months it took to build Camp Century, more than 6,000 tons of supplies were used. Even the vehicles we used at the site had to be transported over the ice on big bobsleds. We called these convoys of 10 and 20 ton sleds heavy swings, crawling up the ice cap at approximately 2 miles an hour. 
A heavy swing would reach the camp in about 70 hours if everything went well. We used wooden caboose-like trailers, wanigans, to house members of the construction crews for the three-day trip. Mukluk, a three-month-old Eskimo sled dog, went along as camp mascot, strictly against regulations. Caterpillar tractors with extra-wide treads pulled the heavy swings. Each tractor could pull from 50 to 100 tons. Finally, like a wagon train in the Old West, the first heavy swing got underway. At the same time, we used another type of smaller vehicle to transport an advance party. These pole cats would average 10 miles an hour and make the trip in little more than half a day. A convoy of pole cats, each section carrying six men, was called a light swing. We also used light aircraft throughout the operation arch roof, which would cover the trench. Camp Century was starting to grow, and so was Mukluk. We used three Peter plows to cut all the different trenches we needed. By making a series of undercuts, the width of most of the lateral trenches was greater at the bottom than at the top. This cut down on the amount of roofing material required. This is a standard T5 engineer Arctic building, designed for cold weather use. Composed of plywood insulation panels, these buildings would provide space for comfortable working and living under the ice. Since every unit had been checked out in advance, our crews could put up one of these buildings in less than a day. As soon as the shell was completed, crews began to wire the buildings for interim power provided by diesel generators. As each unit was finished, I marked it off on the chart on my office wall. As the major interior work within each tunnel was completed, the entranceway was blocked up with bricks of snow. It took about two days to build one of these walls. Once in place, these bricks would bond together into a solid wall, and only a small entranceway would be left. We then used a bulldozer to push loose snow into the doorway of the tunnel to complete the seal. Later, an escape hatch would be placed at the end of a small wooden form for an emergency exit. When it was completed, the entrance was weatherproof and serviceable. Throughout the long period of construction, within the primitive facilities of the work camp, the men solved the everyday problems of working and living as best they could. Meanwhile, work had begun on the four nuclear trenches. These were the widest and deepest trenches and did not use the undercutting principle. The heating element inside the insulation kept water lines from freezing. Flexible sewage lines also had to be run through the camp. At this time, to keep on schedule, we were using 12 and sometimes 14-hour shifts. For like any modern city, Camp Century required a complex of interconnecting corridors 
carrying a maze of piping of all sizes and shapes. One of our proudest achievements was our solution of the water problem. A steam hose with a special drilling nozzle was used to melt a hole three and a half feet in diameter, 120 feet down into the ice cap, until a pool of water formed which did not drain off. This pool provided 10,000 gallons of fresh water daily. Throughout the camp, an extensive electrical system was now installed. For electrical heating would not only be clean, but it would also reduce the threat of fire. To bear the weight of the vapor container, the reactor building was constructed around a framework of steel beams. The floor was of heavy planking mounted on other steel beams. We had to use hand rigging methods, the best we could do under the confined conditions, to put the nuclear equipment in place. Every step had to be checked very carefully since the power plant had been pre-fitted in the United States and must be emplaced within a tolerance of one-eighth of an inch. The power plant consisted of four basic elements. A nuclear heat source, equipment that would convert the heat energy into electrical energy, and a system to dispose of excess heat, all regulated by an extensive network of instruments and controls. The last buildings to be assembled were those that would contain the nuclear sections. Now, let me just pause this for a second. This is from 1963, right? They started doing this in 1950, you know, when it was supposedly real colder. So obviously it's just ice and we can't do shit in it. But I wanted to draw your attention to the excessive water and what would they need to be so cold there and why, well, you know, it's not our land, but we have a base west of this underground nuclear reactor secret base <laughs> and not only not only that 10,000 gallons of water and i'm going to direct you to this new intel project that's happening in ohio that is going to be doing some stuff underground that requires 15,000 gallons of water a day so weird so weird it all kind of sounds the same and and you're kind of wondering and it all comes back to well, we don't own Greenland, but we're putting all this stuff in Greenland. And okay. Okay. Let's just see. Look. Look at this amazing video. Propaganda at its finest. These shells were built around the nuclear system equipment only after every major component had been put in place. The next phase was to be the activation of the nuclear power plant. Wearing the white safety hat is Captain Jim Barnett, in charge of this operation, who will tell you about this critical phase. We took every precaution in the book, and some that weren't there, to make sure this would work right the first time. When the entire system had been carefully tested, it was put into operation. We were then ready to begin loading the reactor core. 
One by one, the few elements were removed Get from the, the fuck out of here. Look at his hands Carefully touching uranium. Each of these bars containing approximately 500 grams of uranium-235 was then unwrapped, inspected, and wiped clean of any dust. <laughs> wearing wearing protective tank. This preliminary test proved that the fuel elements, when assembled, would not go active prematurely. After each element was in place, instruments were read, and an evaluation of reactivity was made and reported over loudspeakers. The crewmen were protected by a shield of approximately eight feet of water as they lowered the fuel elements into the fuel storage tank. Later, each of these steel and uranium bars would be transferred underwater to the nearby reactor core. Every step of the testing was meticulously monitored and regular announcements made to the workers assigned to the loading crew. Total U-235 content of the assembled core is 13.376 kilograms. Coefficient of reactivity 0.935. The assembly is still subcritical. When all preliminary tests were completed, we began to transfer the fuel elements one by one and started loading the reactor core. As each fuel element went into place, the count rate of neutrons released gradually increased. Within the core, to prevent the reactor from inadvertently going critical, control rods were in place. This gradual activation of the pile took almost nine hours. In this tense atmosphere, we changed crews twice. Above us, it was dark and miserable. With the approach of winter, the sun was preparing to set for the year. Finally, our meters reported a significant increase of reactivity. The whole camp was standing by, waiting, tense. By the ninth hour, the last fuel element had gone into place. A plot showed the location of every bar. Then the control rods were gradually withdrawn until the reactor went critical at 6.52 a.m. Now here it is. With all five control rods withdrawn 6.24 inches, PM 2A went critical at 0652 hours. Within the next few weeks, the final touches were put to Camp Century. Today, powered by its nuclear reactor, this unique installation is a completely modern community, deep under the ice. This is a far cry from the primitive James Way huts of the work camp, where three showers served 250 men. Here, there are showers for all, and facilities for every modern convenience. Among the many sophisticated facilities at Camp Century is the dispensary, complete in every detail. For while the remote research community is isolated by 150 miles of ice and snow, its medical capabilities can cope with almost any emergency. It also has a small chapel for regular religious services. And it boasts the largest deep freeze in the world. Here is enough food to feed the camp for several months. Everything from steak to fruit salad. salad. I wonder if they had the COVID vaccine there. That would be interesting because they would, they would be able to keep it cold quite easily there. Right? They wouldn't have to use a lot of electric supply or anything. But um, before we end today with all this amazing information and finding out exactly what is going on in Ukraine, we should talk um, with Katrina Ketsizova. You know, she could tell you what is NATO's deal? in the Arctic. NATO at this moment 
that does not have an Arctic strategy or a clear Arctic policy, and its approach to the Arctic has has been traditionally very cautious. Uh, NATO as an alliance works by consensus, so any decision that would concern the Arctic would have to be agreed upon unanimously by 30 member states. And because that consensus wasn't there, the Arctic did not feature um, in the strategic concept, which was adopted in 2010. And overall, the northern dimension um, has not been discussed as often as eastern or southern dimension or fight against terrorism. Um, it did, however, uh, appear in the text of the Brussels summit communique in June uh, last year. So since 2014, uh, there has been growing pressure on NATO uh, to rethink its strategic approach to the region. And I think that over the past four or five years, there has really been a visible shift in NATO's approach towards the Arctic. From uh, the Trident Juncture ex exercise in 2018, uh, which was conducted under an Article 5 scenario, to the establishment on jo of Joint Force Command Norfolk in 2019, and as we heard, uh, cold response exercise, which is taking place every other year and which is kicking off uh, today. And at this moment, uh, NATO is in the process of drafting its new strategic concept, which is expected to be approved at the upcoming NATO summit in Madrid uh, in June. And it's really, it's the second most important document after the Washington Treaty, which will set the direction uh, for the coming 10 years. Um, and it is expected that there will be much more emphasis on defense and deterrence. And it is an opportunity for NATO uh, to reevaluate its approach to the Arctic, uh, but also its approach towards Russia and China in particular, which did not feature at all in the strategic concept adopted in 2010. So I'd say that the decisions NATO sets now uh, will really set the tone for the next 10 years. And then you have to think the next 10 years where it's, well, it's 2022 now. Why don't we do it in 2020? That's right. That's right. Because President Trump was president. And he was telling them that they need to pay their fair share. But, you know, one thing people don't know is that Estonia is one of the most highly sophisticated digital quantum era nation uh, on the planet. You think China has social credit systems. Oh, you must see what Estonia has done. It's just incredible. Yeah, the Baltic country is home to 1.3 million people and to one of the most advanced digital societies in the world. From e-residency to online voting to national ID cards, we're here to see how Estonia can be a blueprint for other countries looking to go digital. For our first stop, we went straight to the top with a visit to Estonia's president, Kirsti Kellulide. If you could describe Estonia's digital society to someone who's maybe never heard of it before, what would you say? You can apply for a passport, you can apply for a driver's license, you can sell your car and buy your car online, register it online. So most of the services in Estonia, when it concerns public service, uh, is digital. We have a generation who has grown up knowing that uh, you communicate digitally. Estonians realized because they embraced the internet and technology, business and everything was going to move to the internet. Instead of just having an offline ID card, you also need something that works online. So we are inside the showroom of eEstonia, which showcases a lot of the country's digital solutions. 
we're going to take a look at the electronic ID and digital signatures. Every Estonian is issued a digital ID. Physical ID cards are paired with digital signatures that citizens use to pay taxes, vote, do online banking, and access their healthcare records. For a small country, the impact of the digital signatures has been big, saving the government an estimated 2% of GDP per year in salaries and expenses. Estonia says 99% of its public services are available online 24-7. It takes under five minutes to fill out taxes online, around one-third of citizens vote online, and 99% of prescriptions are issued electronically. Health records can be shared among doctors using a single electronic file that the owner can see at any point in time, too. So here you can see a list of doctors that I have been in treatment with. Everything that regards your health record, your health, this is here. So another big feature of Estonia's digital society is the e-residency program. This basically allows you to start a company here in Estonia, even if you're not a resident. E-residents can benefit from the European Union's single market without actually living in the EU. Estonia was the first country in the world to offer e-residency. And so far, more than 50,000 people have applied for the program since it launched in 2014. So we are on our way to meet with Tavi Kotka. Tavi is a well-known presence in Estonia as the country's first chief information officer. We just started to think about it, like how can we can increase the amount of people who are connected to Estonia. We had to like approach this question differently and we took the approach that, okay, why not we connect them digitally? So how did Estonia become so high-tech? It all started in 1991 when the country gained independence from the Soviet Union. The government embarked on a series of fast-track reforms to modernize the economy, and it saw investments in technology as a key way to boost economic growth. By 2000, all schools were equipped with computers, and today children as young as seven years old learn how to code. The government also offered free computer training to 10% of the adult population. These efforts helped raise the percentage of Estonians who use the internet from 29% in the year 2000 to an impressive 91% in 2016. Skype was one of Estonia's early tech success stories. The video chatting company, which was bought by Microsoft, was founded here in 2003. Estonia claims it's home to more tech unicorns, which are private companies valued at more than $1 billion per capita than any other small country in the world. Its recent unicorns include payments company TransferWise and Uber competitor Taxify. Other companies focusing on everything from blockchain to organic food are now vying to be the next Estonian unicorn. I think the environment, the, the setup right now is, is very friendly and I hope they keep it this way. So the road to a digital society here in Estonia hasn't been without bumps along the way. In 2007, the country suffered a massive cyber attack, which forced the government to take steps toward protecting online security. Estonia helped launch a branch of NATO devoted to fighting similar attacks. The government created a data embassy in Luxembourg where it stores copies of all of its data. And schools teach cyber hygiene starting in elementary school. The efforts haven't stopped cyber attacks altogether, but today many people here are convinced their data is safer online than on pen and paper. You actually see who has access to data, what data was collected, why, how it was used. And, and if you have an ability to control that, you can cover it, you can delete it, etc. It actually gives you more privacy. One thing we learned about Estonia's digital society, it's not enough just to keep up with technology. As its population ages, Estonia is trying to lure in high-skilled workers like digital nomads, remote workers who use technology to do their jobs anywhere around the world. 
We're heading in to meet Carolee Hendricks. She's the CEO of a company called Javatical. She's working with Kilo Vansi from the Estonian Interior Ministry to develop what would be the world's first digital nomad visa. It's one example of a public-private partnership at work. It really reflects on what uh, our whole immigration policy is about. We want to attract uh, talented people, entrepreneurs that are beneficial to our society, to our economy. Do you see it as important to be attracting skilled workers? The loudspeaker of the world, which means that you know, United States right now or Brexit, it kind of seems that loud is closing down, but there's a lot of countries who are actually thinking about how to make it easier, how to attract people. Where people will move will very much define the um, failure or success of economy, right? So we're seeing how initiatives like the Digital Nomad Visa and e-residency are encouraging startups and entrepreneurs here in Estonia. This is the Tenopol complex. It's home to more than 200 tech companies. Rick Gruss founded a health tech company whose app helps detect early stages of skin cancer. The small environment, the digital environment, people are um, very open for new innovations. As a market size, it's not that big. So you really have to think big at the very first step and think of your growth plans into other countries and other continents even. Replicating Estonia's digital success in bigger, more diverse countries will be easier said than done. After all, the entire population here is roughly equivalent to that of Dallas. But in a world that's only getting more digital, there are a lot of lessons we can learn from this glimpse into the future. Coming to you from it Estonia. It just so, so happened that I worked in Luxembourg when they moved all that big data there. It's so weird. And how it was connected with the Kraken. Yeah, it's just so weird to see how things work. And it's like, Tori, you just Google stuff. Well, here is the final portion of today's show so you can see which NATO we're to base. Because, you know, they say NATO, but you're like, which NATO? Are you talking like physical forces NATO? Are you talking cyber NATO? Which one? We will have two more speakers before we go, go to, to a, a panel discussion. Uh, first of them is Colonel Jörg Darien from the, uh, not from the, he is the director of the NATO Cooperative uh, Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. Uh, this uh, Center of Excellence is a multinational um, cyber defense hub that supports member states and uh, NATO itself with unique interdisciplinary expertise in the field of cyber defense research, uh, training, exercises covering uh, the focus areas of technology, strategy, operations, and law. Um, welcome, Mustarian. All right. Uh, Good morning, afternoon, night, evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, General Mattis once allegedly said that PowerPoint makes the audiences dumber, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure I couldn't accomplish that, but uh, I'm, I'm going to try to make it challenging on myself and not use slides. Uh, anytime somebody from Center of Excellence talks about NATO, uh, I have to start with a disclaimer. Uh, the Centers of Excellence, while carrying the name NATO in their title, uh, we do not get NATO common funding, we're not part of NATO command structure, and thus we do not represent or speak on behalf of NATO. So anything I say, it's uh, opinion of myself or the center, but, but not, not that of, uh, of NATO. Now, when I was preparing for this, uh, I was afraid I'm going to be under-delivering the excitement of change, saying that, well, uh, there isn't all that overabundance of change. Um, 
when I started listening to the president and the following speakers, I, I felt that, hmm, uh, we're all saying the same thing. It's uh, uh, <coughs> a rather, rather evolutionary uh, change, not a revolution. In a, in a military uh, application of cyber, uh, cyber domain, uh, the change hasn't been that great. Uh, the revolutionary point for NATO and uh, NATO understanding of cyber I would designate 2007 attacks on Estonia when Estonia was the first nation to be attacked on a politically motivated basis by another nation. Uh, that really got NATO thinking uh, on uh, terms like uh, what is the relationship between cyber attack and sovereignty, cyber attack and collective response, etc. Uh, and NATO made policy changes. So let's let's go over what has not changed and what is what is a solid pillar. In 2014, NATO declared cyber defense to be part of NATO core task of collective defense. Uh, subtle note being that a cyber attack against NATO nation can be met with a collective response either uh, in a regular kinetic way or by cyber means. Um, 2016, uh, NATO recognized cyberspace as a domain of military operations uh, in which NATO must defend itself as effectively as it does in air, on land, or at sea. Uh, naturally, NATO still uh, before, during, and after the pandemic needs to defend its, its networks. This task hasn't gone anywhere, and NATO is one of the prime targets of many APTs around the world. Uh, the Russian, Chinese, I Iranian, uh, North Korean, etc. Um, NATO allies 2016 committed uh, to enhance their cyber defense posture. Uh, it was a collective promise named the Cyber Defense Pledge. Now, anything tied with resources during a time of crisis, uh, uh, we're all keeping fingers crossed that all the nations will will stand with that pledge. Um, 2018 was a, was a big step forward in operationalizing cyber. Uh, NATO declared that it may use cyber effects, meaning offensive cyber operations, in its operation, but it will not develop cyber weapons of its own. If the particular NATO nations who voluntarily bring those cyber weapons to NATO operations, donate them, then NATO will consider using them. And NATO established the Cyber Operations Center as well in 2018. Now, so what what can we say that uh, 2000, uh, that the COVID-19 has, has changed um, or, or not changed because of what is changing regardless of, of COVID-19 pandemic? Um, we're, we're keeping close eye, I'm keeping close eye on uh, the little exchange between Israel and Iran. Um, uh, Iran attacking Israeli water system, uh, uh, Israel responding by uh, hacking into Iranian ports and uh, disabilitating them for a, for a uh, day or two. Um, very interesting case. This may while it's outside of NATO, they're, they're not NATO nations. Uh, NATO needs to keep close eye of is that is that the new use of, of cyber, military use of cyber. Mm. Uh, COVID-19 time, would it affect NATO cyber rapid reaction teams of being deployed? Um, I, I don't know, and I don't think it's a big issue. Uh, here in Estonia, uh, NATO exercise Defender 2020 was... Uh, 
short of canceled, but uh, significantly changed, but that's an exercise. The operational rotation of personnel took place. The NATO Enhanced Forward Presence Battalion, the NATO Air Policing Units, uh, they maintained the regular rotation. We managed to do it through the pandemic, so uh, I don't think if there is a need, then NATO would have problem deploying any operational units. Um, resources. Uh, now, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a big question. I already mentioned that. Uh, will nations through and after the crisis, keep their defense spending up, keep uh, allocating money to innovation, um, or will the capability gap, as as such uh, defined, keep on growing? Uh, I must have been a captain. Uh, 2005, I wrote my master's thesis in uh, staff college on capability gap between allies. Then it was mostly focusing on air power, on precision munitions, etc., the capability gap is still there. It's just in different areas. And now we're talking artificial intelligence uh, and other cyber, very cyber-related uh, issues. So uh, it, is, it is a big area where the allies need to come together collectively and start, uh, start um, making changes of uh, how we do things and how we develop our forces. What needs to change? Uh, Communication seems to be kind of like your paycheck. No matter what's the number, you always fear you are one-third short. Uh, so no matter how, how good uh, your, your bandwidth, how good your communications, what's the integration of them, uh, there, is, there is always room for improvement. Uh, example, live example. Uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, NATO, as everybody else in the world, faced the work-from-home situation. NATO has a very robust secure classified communication network uh, called NATO Secure Wide Area Network. Um, every NATO unit, every, every working area has a you know, crypto box, computer, uh, designated wires. Uh, it works really well. Now, when people work from home, uh, they work with their government-issued computers. Naturally, it has to be unclassified, but information is still for official use only. We started doing video conferences like everybody else. Then we hit the uh, uh, na- national regulations. Uh, some nation doesn't allow Skype. Some nation doesn't allow go to meeting. Uh, I had to break the rules sometimes because Allied Command Transformation called the meetings on go to meeting. Estonian Defense Forces do not allow go to meeting on their computers. So I used my home computer, which probably broke NATO security regulations. Uh, everybody had to scramble uh, to make things happen, and we made things happen. Uh, but we need to have a, a common agreed upon and tested platform for for collaboration uh from remote uh control over supply chain i not- hope you guys heard that so basically during this uh you know pandemic the whole idea was that they create a separate network where civilians are not allowed because they need that secrecy. And this is what's important to understand your internet versus their internet. It's not something easily understood, but you know, there are some people like me that are upgraded. They could see everything. Why? Because quantum technology is not something new. It's been here. This is why they're developing the infrastructure to quantum uh, cryptography to then allow you to have better technology. I've said this before, flying buses. We're still using pedestrian and ancient technology, tin cans, when there's way more advanced. And you always have to try it somewhere. 
And every single nation across this planet has been tested on for various things. They could be medical, they could be technical, they could be societal, they could be psychological. Everyone is basically a subject. And now while everyone's freaking out about this agreement with the WHO, I urge you to remember that the WHO dictated all our policies already. That the WHO was giving directions to the whole world already. How? Through the CDC, who are unelected officials that have no say in anything, that are simply employees that we pay. Therefore, that's already happened. They're just sealing the deal. They're sealing the deal for something that already happened so that it can be public. It's all a damn show. And right now, what you are seeing is what I said back in 2015. This is a civilized revolution. A civilized civil war. Actually, it's a revolution. It's not a civil war. We're not against our own average citizens, except for the, sh- the really far gone people, which are just like in that movie at the Matrix. Hold on. Let me see if I can find that clip. It was said so, so perfect. Here it is. Matrix sheeple scene. And there's a lot of people in that. How dramatic. Tiffany? It was a private joke. An amusement, that's all. An amusement? Mm. Uh, kind of like that? Okay. How? If you hated the name so much, why did you heal like a good little bitch so long? <laughs> Yeah, definitely asked for that. Oh, God. Can't you control her? That was for using children. We have a few questions. You tried to activate the failsafe? The suits tried. Obviously, without control of your source code, I knew that was impossible. So why haven't the suits purged you? Because I know this system. I know human beings. And I know you. Right now, you're feeling good about what you've done. You should. It was a victory. Bravo. Now what? You've come here to negotiate some kind of deal? You think you hold all the cards because you can do whatever you want in this world. I say, go for it. Remake it. Knock yourselves out. Paint the sky with rainbows. But here's the thing. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty. And that means you two back in your pods, unconscious and alone, just like them. (laughs) We're not here to negotiate anything. We were on our way to remake your world. Change a few things. I don't like the paint the sky with rainbows idea. Just remind people what a free mind can do. I forgot. It's easy to forget. He makes it easy. That he does. Something you should think about. Before we got started, we decided to stop by to say thank you. You gave us something we never thought we could have. And what is that? 
another chance. See, evil, when shown to all, when you're at the wire, when your face is eating dirt, when you realize that your hands are tied to your feet, that you were hogtied, that every single chip is stacked against you, and yet you stand, you can't help but thank the architect for giving you that chance. People should have more faith in humanity. People should have more faith in people because unfortunately we're in a revolution and the problem is not the enemy, which are those that seek to control the people, but the actual people themselves that are experts and telling you who's wrong and who's right while they're inertly sitting by letting everything happen, opining from whatever throne they wish to sit. God bless everyone. Have a fantastic weekend. With the institutions, sick illusion, no, it won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. We will not With the institutions, sick illusion, no, it won't be televised. Welcome to the revolution. The revolution won't be televised. Government been telling lies. If you're not with us, you better step aside. Witnessing the genocide. Everything is centralized. The food that we consume and explain it all with pesticides. Easily identify the sheep and the snake. The real and the fake. Giving us a reason to pray. I'm gonna make my own choices. A voice for the voices. They trying to destroy us. Avoiding the poison. It's all pointless if you don't have a purpose. If you read the verses, you'll know who we versing. Government can tell you what your worth is. Look deeper than the surface they don't even want you researching or asking questions we all being tested Shh. shut your mouth they comply that's the message want you depressed on prescriptions that mess with your head got you stressing suppressing expression we will not comply with the institutions sick illusion no it won't be terrified.